podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world in this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that's moving me in relation to church, theology, and hopefully to empower you and your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your personal growth in Christ. Today, I'm going to take uh, another opportunity, um, hopefully shorter than the last time, uh, and Re- and cover Rediscovering Bethel's podcast. So Bethel Church in Redding, California has released a series of podcasts, six, almost two-hour uh, episodes to try to uh, retell their story, to paint the narrative that Bethel's not as bad as as everyone thinks and all the critics are sort of wrong. So uh, that's, uh, it's a six six episode um, podcast that they've released and um, they've all been, I just checked this out. They've all been viewed um, each episode about 20,000 times or over 20,000 times. And so people have seen it. It is uh, well watched in that sense. And uh, the first three episodes are Bill Johnson and Dan Farrelly. They're now uh, installed pastor. He was the director of the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, and now he's their pastor since uh, Eric Johnson has moved on and left Bethel in the last while. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, this episode I'm going to cover. I'm going to cover episode three of. I'm trying to do this in six episodes and not do it in twenty or something like that because it was a lot of material. Literally, like a lot of material. They covered a lot of stuff said a lot of stuff and I want to try to cover it all because I did this uh, work. I looked through every single episode. I watched every single minute of every single episode and helping um, try to uh, give a friend of mine um, some material um, for a project he was doing. I will hold off on telling who that was uh, for later. Um, You'll probably find out or maybe see it later. But I wanted to put my work because I spent a lot of time working on this and looking at it into something that would help you um, in the end understand the discrepancies and what was uh, done and said in that episode. So episode three, um, and I'll go through it and make my critique, make my, um, not all was bad, I have to say from the beginning, I think I've said that in other episodes, I do, do give them credit for some of the things they've said, um, but for the most part, it was a, it's a PR type of stunt I think I said in the last episode, Bethel interviewing Bethel about Bethel. Um, so it's not a real honest look at their own material. It's not a real honest look at their own stuff. So uh, let me jump in. So this episode, episode three of their podcast series is called Supernatural or The Supernatural Signs and Wonders. Uh, Bill Johnson and Dan Farrelly together are, uh, so Dan Farrelly is basically interviewing Bill. That's how it kind of goes. It looks like a discussion. They're sitting across the table from each other. Um, they're nice and happy and, and everything like that, but it definitely um, has the feel of a conversation rather, but 
Bill uh, is answering questions. Dan is the one asking. Bill Johnson, Dan Farrelly, address grave sucking. Oh, by the way, a lot of people uh, critique or review videos like this and they just play them. I'm not playing them because uh, Bethel won't play fair. They won't allow you to do fair critique of their materials, which is allowed under the fair use warrant law, but uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you what they said. So don't take my word for it. You're welcome to go look at those videos. I'll post the link to the video that I'm critiquing in this episode right below here. So, and any other things, any other notes that I have, I'll post below. So in this episode, go check what they've said, check that I'm doing it right. Um, I'm trying to, I don't always quote them, but I do say what they have said. And I try to give you the, the, the sense of what they're saying. So all that said, all that background done, Bill and Dan, uh, begin episode three by addressing grave sucking. Um, they said they laughed when they first heard the term and a quote unquote concerned citizen created the term grave sucking for them. So, of course, that's a backhanded smack at the criti critics. Um, but, you know, what else are you going to do? Uh, what, what, are you, what are they doing? They're soaking up the anointing. They're sucking up the anointing of graves. So. Dan Farrelly talks about uh, Bill and his backgrounds instead of talking about the issue. So right away, they start talking about their background, where they came from, a little bit of their testimony, etc. Bill was raised, uh, he says, with the glory, the glory always hitting them, whatever that means. So he was raised in a probably a deeply charismatic tradition. Uh, we kind of know that from his background. Dan Farrelly describes his own background as skeptical. He said he didn't speak in tongues till he was about 20 years old, and that that's sort of a, a negative thing. He sort of frames it as a negative, that he never spoke in tongues till he was about 20. Farrelly says uh, they learned to risk and enjoy the presence of the Lord and put it off as a positive. Uh, taking risks is positive in this in this culture. So, uh, meaning they try new. What they mean with taking risks is they try new stuff. They try new things that don't have anything to do with the Christian life. Then Bill Johnson does say, uh, "Yes, we want to take risks. We don't want to be an error." He says, "We don't want to be deceived, but we do want to take risks." So, one of Bill Johnson's other teachings is uh, taking risks is going off the map, is what he calls. And what he's doing with that is that he says um, that that you have to be uh, you have to go off the map. Meaning, um, we've got as much done as much as we can with the Bible and what we have. Now we have to go off the map. Um, so <clears throat> he says uh, here in this section, you almost have to be willing to fail to succeed. Uh, we don't always get it right, he says, and so then we have to clean up a mess. Again, I think I said it in the last episode. I'd like to know what he's talking about. <laughs> what exactly, specifically is he talking about? Did they not get right? And how did they clean that mess up? Uh, did they repent? Uh, like he said in the last show, they said sometimes they don't get it right and, and they need to clean up the mess and go back and repent. When have they done that? Um, I'm not aware of when they've ever repented or had to go back and repent. Um, I'd be curious what he's specifically talking about. But uh, he doesn't say, of course, he just kind of generalizes a lot of generalizations in this, these episodes. So uh, Johnson then describes the difference between the production of, say, Apple products and their research and development in Apple, of Apple products. 
And research and development doesn't try to be an inventive. If they don't try to be inventive and take risks and push the envelope, then they won't ever invent anything. If you treat it like a production of a product, production is different than research and development. So um, they use this this often. And Chris Valentin talks about research and development has to take risks and and production of something is different. So if you don't take risks in R&D, then you'll never create anything or invent anything. And so they're an R&D culture. That's what he what he says or what he what he tries to 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 get here. Either, you know, the, the production comp, uh, type of organization will just get the status quo. But uh, R&D organization will take risks. And um, so um, they always want to push the envelope and try new things. And funny enough, that's the justification for in this context. It's context he's talking about is grave sucking or grave soaking, laying on graves of revivalists, previous revivalists, revivalists, and trying to soak up the anointing. So it's all interesting. They're talking about taking risks in the context of talking about grave sucking. Why would they talk about taking risk in the context of grave sucking? What they basically are trying to get across is we're a risk culture. And so some of our kids, our youth, they, they go a little too far maybe sometimes and um, they take it out of whack and stuff like that. So um, <laughs> it's interesting. So this whole episode uh, of grave sucking is basically we don't do it. We didn't do it. We never did it. We don't ever and never, never, ever, ever would do it. But if we did do it, <laughs> this is maybe why. <laughs> because we take risks, you know. You know, it's like the the monkey, uh, hear no evil, see no evil, <laughs> speak no evil. You know, like they never, ever, 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 ever did it. We never do it. We never want to do it. We We don't do it. But if we did... I mean, this is maybe why. It's just, it's it's comical, you know? It's comical. They laughed when they first heard about it. Um, Bill Johnson has obviously, with video evidence, picture evidence, gone to graves. He admits it in this episode that he has gone to graves to seek, uh, to pray for the anointing that those people had. Now, does he personally go to graves? I don't have any video. I've never seen any video evidence that he has personally tried to suck up the anointing from those people. Uh, there are videos out there everywhere about, about this, people doing this, people trying to go to graves to suck up the Holy Spirit um, anointing at graves of people like Charles Finney, C.S. Lewis. I mean, there's a picture of Benny Johnson herself the, the wife of Bill Johnson, laying on the grave of C.S. Lewis. You know, I, I, uh, she's also hugging some tombstone. It's a tall obelisk tombstone. I forget who it was. And I showed my picture, the picture to my wife, and I said, this is wild, right? And she's like, oh, that's not so bad. And then I said, wait a minute, honey. Um, when was the last time you hugged a gravestone? And she's like, oh, yeah, um, that's strange. <laughs> so... They've done it. There's mountains and mountains of evidence that this is a thing. It's not, you know, so again, they gaslight us critics by saying, this is not a thing. We don't even know what y'all are talking about. When they first heard the term grave sucking, they laughed like, what is this? They're, they're doing it. 
They're doing it. There's video evidence of them doing it. There's there's hundreds and hundreds of pictures out there. If you just go look at look it up, you'll find it everywhere. Um, Bill Johnson himself standing behind graves, his wife uh, on her own Twitter feed. You know, just go look at it. They post those videos themselves. People laying on graves, people on videos. Ben Fitzgerald is the leader of uh, the Awakening Europe movement here in Europe, and he's done it himself. A five-minute video of him with BSSM students going to the graves of people trying to suck up their anointing. They do it. So this video is them saying, we don't do it. We never did it. But if we did, uh, then here's maybe why. It's because we take risks. We're just risk takers. You know, we're so awesome. So after they sort of uh, justify their own actions of grave sucking, uh, saying they never did it, uh, but if they did, here's why. Maybe I have this teaching that there are mantles that are to be claimed. Uh, They laid there unclaimed. And I'm going to pull up a book where he says it. So uh, Bill Johnson in his chapters in the book, The Physics of Heaven. uh, This is um, one of the craziest books that I've ever read in my entire life that passes itself off as Christian. Um, It is not Christian. It is uh, New Age and occultism, but it's a Bethel approved book. See on the back, if I can pull it up there, Bethel approved. Um, It's still being sold in their bookstore today. And so in Bill Johnson writes two chapters in this book, and I believe it is recovering chapter four called recovering spiritual inheritance. So on page 30, he says, there are, this is Bill Johnson speaking in the physics of heaven on mantles, unclaimed mantles is what he says. There are anointings, mantles, revelations, and mysteries that have lain unclaimed Literally where they were left, where were they left? Where the people were buried, I guess. You know, where, where, where else could you go fetch a mantle from one of these previous revivalists? Literally where they were left because the generation that walked in them never passed them on. I believe it's possible for us to recover realms of anointings, realms of insight, realms of God that have been untended for decades simply by choosing to reclaim them and perpetuate them for future generations. So I'm going to keep going. My uh, my colleagues just came in the door, but you can hear them in the background, but all right, whatever. <laughs> so... Um, It's pretty obvious and pretty clear here in uh, the physics of heaven. Bill Johnson believed there are anointings and realms of insight that God has uh, intended for us to have, but we have to go reclaim them. So the section is called unclaimed mantles. We should go reclaim those mantles. What's the way that someone could go reclaim a mantle? I mean, if you're thinking creatively, they want you to be creative and go off the map. So if you're thinking creatively, why not go to one of those previous revivalist graves and go claim one of those unclaimed mantles that lie where they were left, he says. Um, pretty creative of those BSSM students to go claim those mantles, you know, to go get the anointing that was left there. So um, let me uh, unpack that for a minute. Um, there are no extra special anointings. This movement talks about anointings that someone can have for healing, for miracles, for revival. For There's anointings for everything under the sun. 
Um, I've written an article now on it. I'm trying to get this published as well, and we'll be presenting it actually at a Pentecostal conference this this summer. Um, and <clears throat> there are no extra special anointings. The anointing in the Old Testament is for the prophet, priest, and king was anointed into the uh, office of the prophet, priest, and king, and we don't anoint people in the New Testament anymore for any prophet priest or king. We are not anoint we don't anoint people into offices. There are no offices. The offices are of pastor, elder, and deacon in the New Testament economy. There's no governmental authority. There's no governmental anointing anymore, like in the Old Testament. And Jesus is our anointed head. He is the Messiah, the Mashiach the anointed head, and we are anointed as well. The Bible says it very clearly in 1 John 2 and 2 Corinthians 1 that we are anointed, and our anointing is is actually connected to the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. So once we are saved, once we are once we are uh, sealed in the Holy Spirit through our salvation, through our belief in Jesus Christ, we are immediately anointed. There are no special, extra special anointings. There are no higher levels of anointing. The scripture is clear right there in 1 John. There's no uh, levels of anointing. There's no lower anointed. There's no higher anointed. You can't lose the anointing. It, 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 it's not. It's part of who you are as a Christian. So these guys, when they say um, there are anointings to be had, that's not true. It's a construct. It's a false, uh, false belief. There are no extra special anointings. This is wrong. Um, and it, it works itself out in, in manipulative and, and, and abusive ways, actually, uh, specifically when you hear the phrase, touch not the Lord's anointed. Um, what they're saying is there is an extra special level of anointing on this or that person, this or that apostle, this or that leader or prophet, and you dare not criticize them because they are the anointed. They're the extra special. They have a, a level of anointing higher than we, and um, that is a false construct um, it's a lie. There are no other anointed. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are anointed, the same as Bill Johnson, the same as anybody else. There are no more people more anointed than another. You and I are all in Christ anointed the same. And this false construct that these guys build uh, to prop themselves up, to prop up the anointed leaders is is, is false, is, is untrue. So, um, yeah, that that's how they possibly how kids, you know, why they ask the question. I don't we don't know why kids go on these graves and try to suck up the anointing. I mean, we were never there, even though there's pictorial evidence. OK, let's say they don't teach it. They don't teach kids to go to graves and suck up the anointing, but they do. You know, they ask kids to jump, to take the next creative leap to, to, to be to go off the map. And they do. They go off the map by their own teaching by going to try to claim that mantle, to try to claim that extra anointing. But if you're a BSSM student or previous BSSM student, there is no extra special anointing. Hear this from me. If you hear anything in this episode, you are anointed in Jesus Christ by the very fact that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You've placed your faith in him and that's it. He has anointed you. He did it. You don't have to earn your anointing. You don't have to go to a grave. You don't have to go do this or that or the other thing to try to receive an anointing. You don't have to be laid hands on to receive an anointing. It's impossible. Those anointings are given to you by God to make you one of his children. And so if you're, if you're trying to seek the anointing, stop. It's a false construct. It's not a thing. <laughs> 
um, my kids asked me, was that a thing? Is that a thing? Or was that a thing? No, it's not a thing. <laughs> the anointing is not a thing. Anyways, um, not a thing that they make it. It is a thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and you have it if you're a believer. So uh, Bill Johnson then goes on to say there are lists in the Bible of how you can experience God or how people have experienced God, but they don't contain the nature of God. In other words, you can try other stuff because there are a list of supernatural stuff in the Bible and you should experience it too, as long as it sort of is in the same trajectory, he says. Oh, this is really, really, really bad because um, can you be on the same trajectory and just try new stuff and random stuff, whatever you want, sort of? Um, that's why these kids go off the map. Hey, he said, go claim the anointings, go claim the mantles. It's on the same trajectory, Bill. You know, I mean, I don't see how you can't make that connection, actually. P those previous revivalists, actually left their mantles where they lay. They're laying in the grave. I mean, where else can you go get that mantle, right? So they're actually not, they're, your, your BSSM students are making the logical leaps, actually. They're making the logical steps to go, go, get, go get that anointing somewhere. They're on the same trajectory. So, um, yeah, um, basically, this is, you, you can do other stuff that's not in the Bible, you know, as long as it's sort of in the same God experience. Um, yeah, these things aren't described in scripture, though, you know, not to stay on the same trajectory. I mean, the New Testament writers are avoid wrong trajectories of basically every single New Testament writer is correcting some sort of false teaching. So um, and he says these lists don't contain God's nature. It's, it's, it's splitting hairs. It's, you know, making, um, of course the word of God contains his nature. When they, when the Bible is describing him and how he's to be experienced, he's describing his nature. Um, so this is how he can kind of get away with basically creating new experiences, trying new things. And their church basically goes off the map. They just, as long as they're staying on the right, on the same trajectory, sort of. Well, you know, if they're on the same trajectory, why do they scoff at grave sucking? It's on the same trajectory. It's on, it's on your teachings trajectory, you know, um, why, why condemn it? You know, they laughed at it and uh, this is not really what we, we don't do that, but it's on the same trajectory, honestly. So, um, Dan Fairley then goes on to describe that they don't teach it. They don't preach it. They have never hoped for our students to do it meaning grave sucking. Um, he just basically says, we've never done it. We won't do it. We haven't taught it. And it's alarming for them to think that the rest of the world believes that they would believe something um, that they don't believe. But why is it so alarming, actually? I mean, you know, that's the question. If it's on the same trajectory, those students are trying to just go seek the anointing. Why is it so alarming? Why is it uh, upsetting that, ye, that, that, that we even would, why even answer the question? You know, if you believe you have never done it, then why do you even give, you know, uh, you know, if you, they actually say this, they mentioned this in the, in the, this episode, why do they even entertain the idea that, that, uh, that they're doing this? If they know they're not doing it, why even answer the question, you know? 
Um, and they even mentioned that we, you know, we, we usually don't answer this question because we know we're not doing it. So why are you doing it now? Why make a statement now on it? Why even have a section in your podcast about it if you're not doing it? And it's never happened with your students or yourselves or Bill, you've never gone to a grave, which he admits in this video he has. He's gone to graves and prayed. Now, I don't know what he, he, he didn't say. He laid on graves and stuff and sucked up the anointing. But why even give this, this uh, idea the time of day? If the critics are totally wrong, no one's ever done this before. They don't practice it at all. Why even entertain this idea? Why give it a response at all? Why take time? They took about, I guess, you know, 10, 12, 12, 15 minutes in their podcast to answer the, this, this question. Why answer it? If you've never done it before, just say, we've never done that, and then move on. You're done. We've never done that. Um, but they know that there is something to it. They know that their students have done it. Bill Johnson himself has gone to graves. His wife has laid on graves. I don't know if he was there while um, she was doing it, but someone took the pictures. <laughs> um, they know they've done it. They have done it. And that's why they're trying to justify it somehow. So uh, they talk about them never having that, done this practice, never taught it, never believed it. Uh, and it's odd that the rest of the world believes that they've done it and taught it and believe it. <laughs> Um, and I, I, I talked about this a little bit already, but there are mounds and mounds of evidence that they do it, that they've taught it, and they at least have tried and practiced it. Uh, whether they teach it from the pulpit or not, that's one thing. There are loads of videos, pictures, pictures of Benny Johnson doing it herself, hugging, laying on graves. They, they, they have to answer those questions. And of course, they're not going to. They don't address the elephant in the room. They basically say, we just don't do it, and whoever thinks we do are crazy. That's gaslighting. Those people, those critics just have to come and ask us, and we'll tell them that we don't believe that. But this is a bold-faced lie. They have practiced it. There is evidence that they do it. Students in their ministry at BSSM do it, and their own staff have pictures of them laying on graves. Benny Johnson herself, Bill Johnson, standing at graves. He, I don't have a picture. I don't, I've never seen a picture of him laying on a grave. Um, and he even further in this video describes that he does go to graves and prays for the anointing. That's what we're talking about. That is not okay. So that's what we're talking about. He has admitted in this video he has gone to graves and practiced, um, the, the, prayed for the anointing. Um, that's necromancy. A necromancy is the, the practice of somehow trying to communicate with the dead either by summoning spirits, go apparitions, visions, raising them bodily, divination, giving you power, the dead somehow giving you power. That's, that's not a Christian practice. And so, like I said before, there's no, there's no uh, extra special anointing. There's no, that, that does not exist. That is a construct. Every Christian's anointed in Christ at their conversion. And so him doing this, he even he admits it, he, he does it. And so that is not okay. And uh, the, the larger Christian community is 
bringing it to light so that you will not become involved with Bethel or NAR or any of this nonsense so that you won't get caught up into this deception. And for those of you who do, I call you out of it. I beg you, I plead with you, repent, turn away from such practices, turn to the living God and turn away from your sin. This is a sinful action and should not be practiced. And those who practice it should repent from it. And that's why we make these type of videos. We call you away from those practices to the living God, not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And so we call you and we beg with you and we plead with you, repent and turn to God. So um, they go on from there and they say basically they don't, they don't deal in defensive battles. They don't get into defensiveness for their ministry. Uh, Bill said, if God's not going to defend me, I'm not worth defending. Um, he just leaves all the defense in this ministry uh, up to God, and uh, which is honorable and noble. I, I would hope that I, I do the, try to do the same thing. I leave let let God defend me. However, uh, they have done these type of things like grave sucking. There's evidence that they're engaged in. Them. They're not addressing the evidence. Um, Bill says he did one time a, a give a defense in a sermon about a newspaper article. So they talked about this whole section then goes into defense of their ministry. And, and he did that because of the new believers who would be affected. And, and this is, but again, this is sort of brings up this whole series is, it brings up the nobility of Bill Johnson. You know, this is so noble of Bill, so noble that he would watch after the new believers, um, and hope you can sense my sarcasm. So their faith was not shaken by whatever, you know, so he's going to, he's going to protect the new believers. Um, it's so noble of him. Um, at the 550 mark, then Farrelly, uh, talks about, uh, people are, at the 550 mark, uh, people are talking, uh, uh, at the 550 mark, Fairley says that people are attacking. Uh, they're not attacking necessarily, but they're just curious. They're wondering, uh, what is this thing and why do they do it and all that stuff? Of course, they're not going to answer the question, but they just put out there that people are wondering, you know, not always critiquing. So not everyone's critiquing uh, this, this practice. We are. I am. I'm saying it's an unbiblical practice that they should repent from and publicly come out and say, we have practiced this in the past and our students have been allowed to practice this and we repent and we, we, uh, disallow them from doing it anymore. So, um, but, uh, they just say, people are just curious. They're not always critiquing. I'm a critic. I'm critiquing it. I'm saying it's not a biblical practice. Um, and then, uh, he relates grave sucking to beating his wife. This is very interesting. He knows he doesn't beat his wife and he knows, uh, they don't do grave sucking. So, um, I'm not going to address the question. I mean, if someone says, Hey, you're a wife beater, I'm not going to even entertain the question because I know I'm not a wife beater. Um, and so he relates that to, uh, grave sucking. I know I don't grave suck. And so we don't even entertain the question, but this is funny because they're entertaining the question right now. They're, they're addressing it. Why would you address it? If you know, you don't do it. Why would you, you know, he says, I don't beat my wife. So I don't even entertain the question. They're not going to entertain the question, but they are. Uh, so I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, so at the 650 mark, uh, Johnson basically says, uh, we don't do it. We never did it. It's silly that anyone would even say we do it. It's like, you're accusing me of beating my wife. So it's that same theme. Yeah. The beating your wife thing. I don't beat my wife. Um, I don't know what y'all are thinking. I don't, I don't beat my wife. So why would I even entertain the question? If, if, you know, Bill Johnson, do you beat your wife? 
he doesn't even entertain the question, but he's entertaining the question of grave soaking right now. So then Johnson describes uh, the building of the House of Generals, as they call it. Um, it's a revival museum where they will collect all the paraphernalia from previous revivals in history. And people like John G. Lake, William Branham, Catherine Kuhlman, and people like that. All those people who have really sketchy histories, um, <laughs> all in this museum. So all those people in the in the um, in the charismatic movement, the you know the Branhams, the Lakes, the the Kuhlmans, that have really seriously sketchy histories. Um, they're going to collect their their memorabilia, and we're going to uh, have this culture. We're going to build this uh, this culture that they build. They, they want to teach that that. So in talking about this museum, this culture that they have built, this teaching that they have built of God, generals, they're these generals of the faith that we have to like honor, it actually leads to grave sucking. So, I mean, they're talking about this trajectory, stay on the trajectory. The, the, those students are staying on the trajectory. They're trying to go to Catherine Kuhlman's grave. They're trying to collect memorabilia um, and, and, and go touch that to try to get an anointing from that. That, that's their teaching. That's what they teach. And so they're just staying on, they're just staying true to your teaching. You know, why do you think these students are doing such stuff? Why are they going to graves? It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Teaching like this or practices like this only come from some sort of teaching. People don't do that type of stuff in a vacuum. So you're trying to collect memorabilia from William Lay, William Branham, John G. Lake and Catherine Kuhlman. And, and if they're going to want to go to those graves and try to get that anointing too. Like, what? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So this culture they've built is actually leading to what their practices are. People don't just practice them uh, officially as an, uh, as an official teaching of Beth Bethel, but people do because Johnson's teaching on claiming mantles that were lost. Go to graves of dead revivalists and try to get anointing. Um, of the mantle of those previous revivalists. That, that's why they're doing it. What, they, they don't just do it out of nothing. So it makes sense why these students would do that. Bill Johnson then says he goes, uh, he does go to graves and pray. He doesn't pray and talk to the dead. He doesn't try to communicate with the dead. Well, thankfully that. Again, here's what happens in this movement. that They, they try to, again, gaslight a little bit and say that we're trying to talk to dead people. We're not accusing them of talking to dead people. We're accusing them of what he has admitted to. He admitted that he goes to graves and prays for the mantle of those revivalists. He prays for the outpouring of the spirit. He prays for the anointing that they had. He prays for the Holy Spirit and a mantle that, that laid there unclaimed. He does what we're accusing him of doing. He admitted it. And, and that's not okay. That's what the problem is. There are no mantles there that laid unclaimed. There are no anointings. Those people are dead and their bones are there. Their spirits are not there. The Holy Spirit is not there anymore. You can't claim the Holy Spirit out of the ground. The Holy Spirit lives in people who are, who are believers, who are saved, who are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You can't go claim an anointing from a dead person. So we are, he, he admitted to what, what he, what, what we're accusing him of, what he's been accused of. And, uh, the other people on the video do the same type of thing. They go and they, they, they try to claim the Holy Spirit. Like I mentioned, Ben Fitzgerald, he's in this long video visiting several graves and delivering the Holy Spirit, 
trying to pr uh, pr push the Holy Spirit through the video screen to the viewers. <clears throat> and uh, that's the, that's the uh, awful, awful, awful practice, and they should repent from it. It's not a biblical godly practice. Um, and so going to those places and doing that is tantamount to necromancy, and it's forbidden in Scripture. Then Johnson and Fairley say that there are places, there are touchstones for our faith. John Johnson describes how he'll go to these places, um, and he'll humble himself and pray, and he'll pray, quote, do it again, uh, do those things again, Lord, pour out your spirit like you did on those people at that time. So this is actually, I thought about, this is direct opposition to what Jesus said in his encounter with the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship. So no place, Jesus confirms with this encounter with the woman, that there will be no more places, holy, high, holy places. People will worship everywhere in spirit and truth. So Bill Johnson says he goes to certain places. That's also an aberrant uh, practice. We don't worship in places, holy places, where there is a more holiness there, more of the spirit of God. There are more presence there. It just doesn't exist. Jesus uh, here says that there will be no particular places people are meant to where people are meant to worship. Bethel's teaching as well says their 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 spot in Redding, California, is a is a thin place, a place where uh, between heaven and earth is thinner than everywhere else. You can reach the heavens, so to speak. Heaven is on earth, uh, and this is their teaching. They teach that there are certain places in the world that are thinner, that there's a, a thinner uh, space between heaven and earth, and that's just not a, not accurate. Um, Jesus, he says, there's not holy, high, holy places. Everyone will worship wherever they are in spirit and in truth. Um, we don't need these places anymore to worship. We will worship all over the world, all over the earth, right where we are, right where God has placed us, right where we live. We will worship there in spirit and in truth. We do not need places. We do not need temples. We do not need holy places. We do not need museums of generals. We are the temple of God right where we're at. So they talk about these places, these sort of high holy places for Christendom. For historical purposes, that's a really wonderful thing to go do is go see Israel. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about not going to visit holy places or, or Jerusalem or, 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 or the, the like, you know, not going to the Middle East or something like this. I'm not talking about that for historical purposes, but for worship there are, uh, you know, we, we're, we don't need to go to those high holy places to worship. Um, and uh, there, there's no sort of extra special blessing or something like that. Um, Bill Johnson describes him going to the upper room, um, funny enough, and fairly admits that it's not the actual upper room where the Holy Spirit, Spirit fell on these early Christians. But if it's not the original upper room, then how does it actually hold such power and authority that Bill ascribes? At the nine-minute mark, uh, Bill describes how he went to the upper room and had an incredible encounter in that environment. But again, Jesus said it, we will not worship on this mountain or the temple. No holy place is needed uh, to experience God. 
Dan Fairley then quotes Bill Johnson's book uh, where he talks about his idea of reclaiming mantles. So funny enough. Now, I don't know if he quoted the physics of heaven that I did here, but this might have been as well a reproduction of some other part of another book. And uh, he talks about this idea of reclaiming mantles and puts it out there as maybe people have misconstrued your quote uh, and they mean and they go do the grave sucking thing. <laughs> I mean, they're on the same trajectory, Dan. You know, they're just like you said it. Just as long as we're on the same trajectory, the kids doing the grave sucking thing, they're just on, they're on the same trajectory. They're doing what you say, go and reclaim the mantle, go and reclaim the anointing that was lost. So, um, these mysteries have lain, remained unclaimed. Um, it's, it's Gnosticism repackaged. Um, there are these secrets that we got to go get and go all the elite Christians, they can go get them and go find them. Um, Then Bill Johnson says that about 20 years ago when he started collecting these relics for the General's Museum, that if they honored those generals, that God would unlock the grace that they lived in. So he says it. Um, God told him that if they honored those generals, basically, uh, these funny, funny enough, these very sketchy, heretical revivalists of the past, that God would unlock the grace that they walked in. What grace exactly? Um fake signs and wonders. I don't know. Like <laughs> these guys, uh, were sketchy, very, very sketchy and lived unrighteous lives. So are they going to unlock the unrighteousness that, that they walked in? I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, that they would be able to receive a mantle and that the same outpouring that these revivals had on their lives, they would believe, uh, that they would release that into the earth. Um, I sure hope they're not releasing uh, the sketchiness of the of those past revivalists. Um, but yeah, now don't get me wrong. Of course, it's important to remember history, and I think it's actually very important to look at um, the these people and their lives and look closely at their lives to realize that they were heretics and that they were living licentious. Uh, not God honoring lives and that they were not walking in grace. You know, he says they were walking in grace, but they were not, obviously not. And <clears throat> so it's important to know history, of course. Um, but, but there's this kind of spiritual connection he makes that God promises to do something. If we remember and honor, this seems to be a bit of a stretch. I don't see any biblical precedent for it, that if we honor and, and collect relics and collect their wheelchairs and that, that people supposedly got up out of and, and this type of, type of stuff, that they will see some kind of grace released uh, to receive their spirit of grace. That's not a scriptural uh, promise. Um, and again, it's a stretch. It's, it's the same thing, you know, going to get those mantles, going to get those anointings, going to get that grace that God uh, had on those people, even though that's pretty obvious for most of those people that there was no grace on their lives. They were uh, deceivers, hucksters, and living sinful lifestyles. So, but there's some kind of grace there and that, and they're going to go after that. But that's not a new, that's not a, a biblical concept that we ought to honor people so that we would receive grace that they walked in. It's not a biblical concept. Again, uh, sola scriptura. I think I mentioned it last time and sufficiency of scripture and, and all is coming to play here. Is the scripture sufficient for faith and life? 
or do we need Bill Johnson's words and hearing God uh, help us in our faith journey and, and getting mantles and doing these and that and the other thing, going to get going to God's general's museum to go get an extra measure of grace? No, no, no. We have everything we need in the scriptures for faith and life. Um, and you don't need new mantles, new revelations, as they call it. All the revelation we need is in the scriptures so he mentioned uh, people like John G. Lake and Mariah Woodworth Etter as examples of evangelicals in Christian history uh, that had been scrubbed, basically, from history. And he did not have a chance to learn about these people in his, all of his seven years of theological education. What's he, what he's missing here is that evangelical community doesn't believe that those people belong to evangelicalism. He's missing that point. They don't belong. They're not mentioned in Christian history or in theological education because they don't belong to Orthodox Christianity. He's not admitting that and noticing that. Why are those people glaringly absent from the history of the church? It's because most Christian historians don't believe that they belong to Christian history, or at least not part of Orthodox theology. So, so John G. Lake was a charlatan and a swindler. He was a fraud. And his theology was so sideways that it doesn't belong to Christian history. That's why people leave these people out. And I certainly hope that people in the future will leave these guys out of Christian church history as well. Because they don't belong to the Orthodox Christian camp. Actually, I did study them in my church history and theology classes in Bible college and seminary, but I studied them as examples of heresy and of theological malpractice, not of orthodoxy. I'll slide over and grab this book real quick. The book, The Agony of Deceit. This is a long, long time ago, a book uh, that Dr. Michael Horton uh, was the editor of, and he got people like R.C. Sproul, uh, Dr. C. Everett Koop. He has a great uh, article in there. Uh, Joel Niederhood and others who wrote in this book about those early hucksters and um, The Agony of Deceit. I don't know if you can get your hands on it anymore. I held it from my Bible college time because it is... Um, it is hard to get your hands on now, so I'm glad I still have it. But uh, maybe you can pick it up somewhere in a used bookstore or something like that or on eBay. But it, it, it shows how these people don't belong to Christian orthodoxy. Um, and, and so we did study them. We, I did study them. In my, I don't know why he didn't or where, where he studied to, to not have studied them. But I did study these signs and wonders, and, and, and I know why they don't belong to theological orthodoxy. So Farrelly claims himself here as an evangelical and, and says, I belong happily to the evangelical camp. But what he doesn't admit is that the evangelical camp doesn't belong to hit the people he's adhering to. We don't believe that this movement is part of the orthodox Christian theological camp. They may think they belong. They may think that they, they do belong to evangelicalism, but they don't. He says that, they, that these people had a radical sacrifice and the power and anointing that they moved in, and either we uh, were embarrassed by them or we don't care or whatever. <laughs> but we, we do know about them, and we don't believe that they belong. So that's just not the case. Like I said, we don't believe that John G. Lake included others, Catherine Kuhlman uh, and, P and the like, do not belong to evangelical theological orthodoxy. 
And that's why people like I did, I studied them in Bible college to study what was aberrant about their teaching and why they don't belong to the history of, of the evangelical theological position. So then uh, here comes Bill Johnson with his NAR speak. Um, he says, we have to prophesy into this generation, quote unquote. God in, God's intent, and uh, we have to prophesy into this generation God's intent and to steward revival, quote unquote. And it's all this terminology that he's created, uh, which is, is not biblical language. Uh, my question, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, prophesy into this generation, um, God's intent to steward revival. Does, does this NAR speak sound anything like biblical authors? No, there's nowhere in scriptures that talks about stewarding revival to the next generation. It's just not there. And the reasons that most mainline evangelical Orthodox church historians have not talked about this movement is because they don't believe it belongs. Uh, you know, Dr. Michael Horton and many others, uh, you know, that was, that was, that was years ago now. Um, but there's more and more people rising up who are speaking out. Um, and actually, uh, Dr. Al Mohler, um, once, um, uh, the Bethel had this, uh, wake up olive thing that happened, um, about a couple years ago now, I guess, uh, this, uh, young child of a worship leader from Bethel passed away unexpectedly in the night. And then they <clears throat> tried to raise her from the dead. And then Al Mohler, uh, wrote in a, uh, said in a podcast, I'll have to post the link to that later, um, that uh, Bethel Church was not a Christian church. And so there are more people, more and more theologians rising up now and, and saying the things that we all know and believe, they don't belong to mainline evangelical Orthodox Christianity. Um, and so, <clears throat> yeah, moves of God, all these, all these NAR speak that they use. Um, notice when they talk about a culture of honor, they don't honor the reformed movement of God or any other theological traditions, they actually dishonor it and downplay it uh, and belittle it and diminish the effects of like the Reformation, the classic uh, 1500s, the, the Protestant Reformation. They don't honor other people of church history. They only honor the Charles Finneys, the John G. Lakes, the Catherine Kuhlmans. They honor deceivers, manipulators, charlatans, and liars of church history who live sinful lives and often died in their sin. They don't honor uh, the other camp, the opposition, as it were. <laughs> they, they honor their own camp. And so when they say, we want to live a culture of honor to those who have faithfully served the Lord, they selectively honor their camp, not the other camp. They only honor the signs and wonders camp and the liars and deceivers and charlatans that went before. Even the curriculum of BSSM shows their imbalanced bias. They only read biographies of these people, and their entire curriculum, as I've seen it, uh, ignores and leaves out any other theological traditions or perspectives. I didn't see anything on the Lutheran Reformation or the Protestant Reformation in their curriculum. Now, not like they have to, <laughs> but it, they're obviously biased. They only read the biographies of uh, these people. Notice here uh, how they're only honoring one generation in the early 1900s. I find that funny. Uh, did this science and wonders camp only make its move since the Azusa Street Revival? So these guys aren't actually being very honest. There's only a move of God, quote unquote, as they call it, from the early 1900s. 
as they have described, uh, a move of God in church history. Uh, it's only 100 years. So in their culture of honor, they ignore the other 1,900 years of those who came before in church history. Uh, so they're placing their entire emphasis on the culture of honor on what is relatively new and relatively short-lived only the last 100 years. They ignore the rest of church history from Augustine, Origen, the early church fathers, and all the other church fathers on through the Reformation, and then from the Reformation to here. They basically ignore or minimize those time frames, and especially the Reformed tradition. They don't honor them. Johnson says if we don't steward those old revivals, well, then we're not prepared for what God wants to do again. <clears throat> There's just no biblical evidence for this. Again, they're 13 minutes into their episode at this point, and he hasn't cracked his Bible open. He hasn't quoted a scripture. This is episode number three. Um, he just makes stuff up. Bill Johnson just gets really emotional and broken up, and you, his voice cracks, and you can sense it, and he's getting emotional at the end of a sentence when he talks about stewarding the revival well. It's emotional manipulation, showing people how wonderful he is and how good of a, a papa he is, Papa Bill. Uh, he is to care about so much that he gets so emotional. Um, it's, it's, it's manipulation. It's emotional manipulation. Fairly closes the section up by saying they're not going to graves uh, to get the anointing. We're going to there to honor and revere those past saints. Uh, this is really on the borderline to revering the dead. Scripture doesn't really have any kind of guidance toward this type of practice. In fact, it condemns it. We have buried our dead. We remember and we move on as Christians. We bury them for 2,000 years. We, we honor them in that way, but we don't go and revere them. We don't go back to their graves to revere. We go back to pay honor, pay our respects, but we do not revere the dead. Fairly describes himself as a non-charismatic coming into Bethel and its environment. And he sort of subjectively uh, describes the experience of seeing, um, is this the Holy Spirit? <laughs> How much of this is the Holy Spirit? Questioning and stuff like that. How much of this is you, Lord? What do I do with this, Lord? Question mark. Uh, this has got to be so tiring. You know, like you're looking around in a Bethel or a you know charismatic church service even, um, and where craziness is happening, people are falling down. It's got to be so tiring to try to always be asking, is this you, Lord? Is this you, Lord? Is this you, Lord? <sighs> what a tiring experience in the normal life to always need to ask question, what is the Lord and what isn't? Um, what What's right? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this spooky? He actually said that. This is spooky. <laughs> Uh, he even actually says that he thought the church at the beginning was spooky when he first arrived. What changed? Why is it not spooky anymore? And he decided, he describes that it was part of his heart posture that changed that made it not spooky anymore. So you got to change your heart posture uh, to kneel down, to bow down, um, and, you know, make yourself open to it not being spooky anymore. Fairly talks about how um, people are being hit by the Lord, um, whatever that means, and what percentage of that is the Lord, and maybe 90% of it is the Lord, and maybe 10% of it is this person. Um, you know, maybe not all the Lord, maybe some of the Lord, maybe some per percentage of the person wants to do this and be hit, you know, somehow. 
Um, <laughs> so it's really very, very subjective. Um, how do you define that? How do you define who's been hit by the Lord and who's not? How do you define if this is from the Lord or is this just made up? Uh, there's just testimonies on testimonies of people who just fall down just because of the pressure. There's, you know, they feel something, right? They feel warm or whatever. They feel electricity. Tell me a place in the Bible where someone felt warm and felt like there was electricity surging through their body. Um, it's, is, it, is this the Lord or is this just made up? There's no biblical basis for their presence ministry of God. They believe there's more presence than anybody else. Uh, when this happens, then there's that. When that happens, then there's this. If this person does that, then maybe they're, you know, maybe they're being selfish. It's so subjective. It's got to be super tiring. Always asking, wait, is that, is this? So at the 15 minute mark, um, there's a story of one of the leaders of the ministry school who had gone to a grave. So funny enough, here it all comes. Dan Fairley tells a story of how this person went to a grave, probably like Bill has taught before that he that we ought to honor these people. And we went to a grave and had a profound encounter with the Lord. So he admits that they did it. I mean, again, it's like we don't do it. We've never done it. We'll never, ever, ever, ever do it. But if we did, here's how and why and maybe. And then he admits that one of their BSSM leaders went to the, a grave and had a profound encounter with the Lord. He came back and told everybody at the school that he had had this profound encounter. And the students were like, wait, can we do that too? You know, and actually it's quote, wait, you can have an encounter with the Lord at a grave. That's the quote, um, from, from Dan Farrelly. And so all the students were started set, trying it. So they're not being honest about this. Again, the beginning of the episode, they say, we don't do it. We never did it. We laugh when we heard what it was. And here he tells a story about how their students started doing it. <laughs> he knows they did it. The, the, the leader of the school went and had an encounter at the grave and then it started spreading like, oh, you can go to graves and, and there are stories that they know of internally that people had visited graves and tried this stuff. They're not being honest. And finally at the 15 minute mark of this podcast, it comes out and they're now saying, oh wait, it did sort of happen. <laughs> For the first 15 minutes, they're basically saying it doesn't, it didn't happen, never happened. And now like, oh, you know, uh, it did sort of happen. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's pretty comical. Um, and, and that's maybe why, you know, one of our leaders went to this grave and had this encounter and then there's the students and the students got into it and wait, what? And, you know, and Dan then says in this part of the episode that he didn't want to squash anything. He didn't want to cancel it or kill it. He said too early. And so he let it play out to see if it, if the Lord was in it. Oh, man. Uh, first of all, this is highly dishonest. They, first of all, they're saying up to this point, they've never done it. It's never happened. And then here he admits that it basically started taking, taking a life of its own in their school. It's dishonest and dangerous. He says if he kills something too early, he learned that we could, quote, miss potentially good things and the weird things that come with that, end quote. So does God do weird things and potentially good things at the same time? 
this is, again, it's so subjective, experiential driven movement that they have. They don't want to kill things too early because their students will stop at taking risks. It's all about risk, man. The risk culture. Um, where is that in the Bible? Where is the risk culture in the Bible? Where is this anywhere explained in scripture as a way to do ministry, as a way to train a generation in biblical living? There's no biblical basis for this whatsoever. It's the opposite, actually. The Bible explains and teaches us how to be balanced and judicious and fair and rational and self-controlled. I cannot think of one passage of scripture that teaches us to take risks. I have to think. I don't. I can't think of one. If you have a risk passage, taking risks is is uh, commanded and told. Put it in the comments down below. I want to hear it. I want to see it. I could be mistaken. I can't think of one. Scripture teaches us to be sensible, reasonable, self controlled. Nowhere that I'm aware of is risk taking signaled as a virtue in Scripture. I'm trying to think. Help me out. <laughs> Um, so then they indicate that uh, if you're trying to, quote, stay away from anything that's dangerous, then you'll miss out on everything that the Lord has. Again, made up theology. Nowhere in scripture does it give us the idea that if you're staying safe and staying sensible and clear minded, you'll miss something that the Lord has for you. Can Christians, then the question comes, can Christians miss something that the Lord has for them? Um, again, the scriptures are sufficient. The Bible is abundantly clear that it's enough for everything we need. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're thoroughly equipped. We have enough. Peter talks about it again. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Shall we be afraid of missing something that the Lord has for us in the Christian life? Shall we go around risking everything just in case we might miss something that God has for us? Their justification for not missing something is unbiblical, an unbiblical justification, and it holds people in control to their movement. You've got to be taking risks. What's the next, next risk that you're going to take for the Lord? So their justification that we better risk stuff uh, or else we might be missing something the Lord has for us holds people in subjection and fear that they better do what these guys have laid out for them on the roadmap or they might miss something that the Lord has for them. This is sort of an NAR theme, but, uh, but we better not miss something the Lord has for us. Uh, if we do, if we, if we don't kind of, kind of stay in line and stay aligned, then we'll miss something. And we don't want to have missed something that God has for us. Um, and I would deeply question that we can't miss anything that the Lord has for us. God has prepared, uh, all the good works that we should walk in them from before, from before in advance. Um, there's nothing you're going to miss Christian. If you've been told you'll miss something in the Lord, you have everything you need for life and godliness. You have the Bible, you have the word of God at your fingertips, open it up. And in the pages, you'll find everything you need. You're not going to miss anything. So um, even uh, if you happen to be living in during the time of the Lutheran Reformation or something like that, could we have missed something that God had for us? I don't think so. I think God uses us for his purposes when he wants, how he wants, in the manner that he wants, and no one is going to miss something that God has for them. This is a dangerous precedent as well. It, it, it will make people want to try things that are not biblical, just sort of to conjure up something that God maybe wants for us, even though it's more conjured up than it is God doing something. 
Uh, so this idea that we'll miss something is also very, very tenuous because the Christian can't miss anything that God has for them. God will do what he wants in the lives of Christians. Whether or not we risk something or not, he's going to do his good and perfect will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. He'll carry it out in our lives. And we'll, do, we'll have everything we need for life and godliness. And the scriptures are sufficient. Johnson then misrepresents the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, and if we are to, we are pulling out the wheat, uh, I'll let him speak for himself here. He says, quote, absolutely. I mean, that's what Jesus is warning us. His warning was, the wheat and the tares said, don't try to pull the tares out because you will pull out the wheat. It's unfortunate that there are tares. Yay. Yeah, but there's also wheat. They're so good. Let them grow with into maturity and you'll be able to tell the difference in this part of the warning that the Lord gives us is that, you know, we try to keep everything neat and clean always because I, I do like perfection. I do like things organized and accurate. But if I'm obsessive about that, I'll actually hinder and negatively affect the work of God that God was doing. Uh, that 10% you referred to. So he's talking to Farrelly and he says the 10% of, of uh, you know, is this God or is this me, you know, type of thing. So my question then comes in at this point, can we actually pull out the tares? Is that Christ's point in this passage? Is that what Christ means when, when he uh, expresses that we can actually kill the work of God? That's not what this passage is about. The wheat and the tares is not about, pull, can we pull them out? Can we actually hinder the work of God in some way? Uh, by, by being too careful or by being a perfectionist or being organized or be like not liking chaos. Uh, these guys, to these guys, the, the sovereignty of God for them is, is that we really affect what God is and isn't allowed to do if we're too careful. If we're too slow, if we're too this or that, if we, if we um, are too organized, we can affect the work of God. That's not a biblical concept. <laughs> I'm sorry, viewer, you are not that powerful. You cannot hinder the work of God. If God's going to do something, he's doing it. If God's speaking, he's, he's going to speak. In the Bible, the Bible is his word. If he's going to do something in this world, it's going to be done. There's no plan B. There's only a plan A, just one. <laughs> and you can't thwart his plans. You can't uh, dampen his plans. <sighs> he is a sovereign God. So um, <clears throat> Dan Fairley goes back to the story about the student who goes and has an encounter with God at the gravesite of some Christian leader. And he comes back with this awesome testimony of his encounter and Farley said that, uh, that every pastor in America would want that problem, that all his people hear a great testimony of how God encountered someone. And all the people would say, I want that. You know, I want, we, we, we all should want that. Um, so they, they actually say, we didn't do it. We never did it. We don't teach it. But every pastor would want that problem that, that people come back and have encountered God at a grave. So it's so laughable. Literally, it's so laughable. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. They've really, they're lying at the beginning of the show. And then they say, um, well, we had this guy have this encounter at the grave and he came back and every pastor would want that problem. <laughs> um, do you as a pastor want your people to try to visit graves and encounter God? 
it's it's just it's so funny like uh, it's hard not to just laugh at these guys and say like they're they're obviously lying like the first section of this video is obviously them not coming forth with the truth and then finally at the end they say well every pastor would want to have this problem that people are encountering god at graves <laughs> no not every pastor in the in the united states wants this problem um, they don't want people, they're people visiting the graves of Charles Finney and laying down on them and trying to suck the anointing up and get another mantle. No, they don't. That's why we're calling you out on it. That's why we're criticizing you on it. Repent of this activity, call your students away from it, tell them to stop and make a hard line. But yeah, I guess you won't. Um, fairly goes on to say that grave sucking is an unfortunate result of a beautiful hunger quote unquote, an unfortunate <laughs> result of a beautiful hunger. Wow, 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 wow. They believe this stuff. They actually teach it. And that's why they're there. BSSM students want to go there to get these experiences, go to graves and try to have an encounter with God there. <sighs> no, it's not an unfortunate result of a beautiful hunger. The hunger is not beautiful. That's the part. They're creating a, a, some sort of uh, narrative that, that there's this beautiful hunger in these students. Then teach them the word of God. If there's a hunger, then teach them the word. So at the 19-minute mark, they talk about this student, and I believe they're talking actually about Ben Fitzgerald. They don't say the name, I don't think, um, but he did this video. He went to the grave of, I believe it's Charles Finney, and he said in that video, the Holy Spirit that existed in him here still exists here, and you can have him, and we're going to deliver him to you through the screen. That's the video. That's in the video. Ben Fitzgerald says it, um, and they praise him for doing that. So they confirmed he did it and call what he did a beautiful hunger. <sighs> so again, these guys are, are, it's not the truth. They're misleading you. They're not telling the truth. From the beginning, they said they never did it. And then here at the 19-minute mark, they confirm they did it and call what he did a beautiful hunger. So the Holy Spirit, first of all, does not exist in the bones of dead Christians. Doesn't believe, doesn't, doesn't exist, that's not a thing. The Holy Spirit is the God of the living. He seals the believer for the day, for the day of salvation. And when they die, that believer's uh, spirit goes to be with the Lord. Um, and there's nothing there. There's dead bones. Um, <clears throat> so they, they praise Ben Fitzgerald, I guess, I think is, is who it is for this beautiful hunger that he expressed. So in this section, they also say this is sort of a weird demonic assault on the beautiful hunger. <laughs> no, it's not a demonic assault. We are concerned that you are leading your students and the people that are practicing these practices into deception and into demonic practices. Those are demonic practices. Necromancy is not allowed for Christians. We can go to the graves and we honor maybe, we don't revere and we don't pray for the Holy Spirit to be sent from the person that's still dead. That, that, that's not a thing. That's animism and necromancy, um, and we should avoid it. So um, it's not a demonic assault. We are uh, calling for people to leave such uh, uh, blasphemous and, and, uh, and, and, and evil 
type of practices that the Bible forbids. Um, these guys are twisting and turning evil into good and good into evil and repackaging it it as if it were not so bad. Um, this is really the height of deception and coercion. Um, then uh, Farrelly asked Johnson about this picture of his wife, Benny. Now, there's not just one picture. It's many, several pictures of her laying down on a grave. And there's not just that picture. It's more than that one. Uh, hugging a gravestone, an obelisk-type gravestone. I believe it's of Charles Finney. Uh, Bill justifies her laying down on a grave, saying basically, we just want to listen to what the Lord is saying in that moment. If he's saying to lay prostrate, we lay prostrate. If he's saying to lay down, we lay down. If he's saying to dance, we dance. And uh, that's, the, that's a quote from Johnson. These are exactly the criticisms we, we critique them for. Uh, to say those things are not okay. Christians don't go to graveyards and lay down on the graves of other Christians. This practice has never appeared in Christian history, and God could not have told her to lay down on a grave. Whoever directed her to do that, to receive a blessing from it, is not the God of heaven. It's impossible. Again, Bill makes himself look really, really slick and really, really sweet and really God-fearing and God-honoring because they just want to listen to God. And everything they do is listening to God. And he has this nonchalant attitude. I, I don't see what people find such a big deal. What's, what's the big deal? We're just listening to God. We go to, to graves to be blessed, and we just listen to God. So Johnson justifies it by saying our whole deal is we want to respond to God and how he's asking us to respond to him. So again, to my point, God did not speak to her to lay down on a grave or hug a grave of these people. Ben Fitzgerald did not hear from God that he ought to go to a grave and deliver the Holy Spirit that exists in the grave of that guy. These things are not from God. Fairly then interjects, if, if you're afraid of being ridiculed, you'll never do anything great for God. Um, does he have a scripture and verse for that? No, it's because it's not there. Um, Dan Fairley then says, any great leader in any great field has had opponents ridicule and mocking them. So basically he puts themselves in the camp of being great because they receive ridicule and mocking for their practices. Again, the hubris is outstanding. Um, we're better than you because we've been mocked for this practice, right? Um, again, they don't deny it. <laughs> they actually admit it, that they go to graves. They admit the student has gone to graves. They admit that they took pictures of these graves. They lay down on the graves. They're just listening to God laying down on the grave. They have not denied it, not just not denied it. They've admitted they've done all the things that we have uh, accused. So Fairley then says that the internet is an ins has an insatiable hunger for this type of stuff and is always angry about something. So the internet itself is angry about something. I, yeah, it's kind of funny. He then says that there are some people who are saints who want to know that Bethel is safe. Um, that's not accurate of the camp that is critiquing them. It may be accurate of some people that are reaching out trying to confirm they're safe. The critique from, from the critique camp doesn't want to know if Bethel's safe. We know and have confirmed that they are not safe. And we're trying to do what Romans 16, 17, and 18 says mar by marking and avoiding those who oppose sound doctrine. And be sure, Christian, Bethel opposes sound doctrine. 
We're trying to help people who might come out of the movement and recover from this cult-like environment that has manipulated and controlled them for years of their lives and have, has, has caught them up in deception and they have not known and come to know the true God of the scriptures. So people are in recovery for these things. So we're trying to help by marking and avoiding so that people don't get tangled up in the movement to start with. Uh, likewise, I, I try to seek to help those who are coming out, who have seen the light, who have been impressed by God to leave. We're trying to help people not get involved. We're not trying to find out, find out if they're safe. I know that the, I know that Bethel's not safe. And those who are already um, involved, maybe to come out, and I warn people to not go to BSSM. I know people who are thinking about sending their children to BSSM, and I warn them, do not send your children to BSSM. I actually was able to save a few. Some people were interested in going there, and I warned their their parents and uh, the, the kids and the parents, and the parents said, I'm not going to let you go. And the, the daughter was actually very happy. One, one daughter that I remember was actually very happy that her parents just made, put their foot down and said, no, we don't want you to go. We're not trying to, to find out if they're safe. That's not accurate. Maybe some people are. Um, they're calling the parents. And it's, it's wild that parents would have to actually have to call and figure out and try to figure out if they're safe. Um, that's something that's pretty interesting. So, so all in all with this whole, with the grave sucking situation, they're lying. They're lying straight to 20,000 people who have viewed this episode. They knew about these things. They knew about Ben Fitzgerald, where he went and recorded a video to try to deliver the Holy Spirit to people. They knew about Benny's photos. They discussed it in their staff team, they're saying. This is incredible. Should we stop this thing? Should we put a stop to it? Should we see if it's the Lord? <sighs> I don't know what to say. You know, it's not an ex There's no excuses here. They knew about it, and they held off judgment or held off stopping it and to see what would happen. It's incredible. It's really incredible. They never did it. We were surprised when people were accusing us of it. The internet is insatiable. <laughs> I mean, come on. Come on. I'm through with that. We all know that they knew. We all knew they knew. And now they're lying to us that they knew. And they told us in the same episode that they knew. <sighs> So then at the 24-minute mark, this is where he says it. He says, in that season, we had some articulation about this. We articulated we, about what we ought to do and was this a true encounter of God and stuff like this. These guys are lying. They knew about it, and he's saying from the beginning of the thing, what are people talking about? We don't really know what this grave-sucking thing's all about. They knew. <laughs> I mean, I mean... It's pretty self-evident. They admit it themselves. Watch the episode up to the 24-minute mark. They then admit that they knew about it, and they were talking about it in their staff teams and what they ought to do about it. I mean, if you heard something like this as a church staff, that you're, look, <laughs> let me help you out, church staff. If you heard some of your kids were trying to do something like this in, in your youth ministry, let's just say, they took a youth ministry trip to go do grave sucking. You put a stop to it immediately. <laughs> I mean, if they're doing, they're doing a Ouija boards or try to do a seance or something like this, you put a stop to it. I mean, anyways, 
<laughs> then they move on to the topic, uh, another topic at the 25 minute mark about Catholics and relics. And they said that they, they prefer that Catholics don't do it. They don't like the, I, the, the idea of relics. Um, but we're not going to separate with Catholics over the issue of the worship of relics. The funny thing to me is what's the difference in relics and the general's museum where, where they're going to get wheelchairs and the relics of people who are in the, in the movement with Catherine Kuhlman. I mean, they'll get little trinkets and other relics her jewelry and stuff like this. And, and, and they'll get stuff from these people and put it in their museum. What's the difference? In my mind, there's not much difference. And interestingly, he says uh, they're not going to separate from Catholics over this. So they're not just partners with Catholics, but they're going to sep- they're not going to separate with Catholics over deeply, deeply problematic worship of relics. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. Um, yeah, so they're basically not going to separate over Catholics over something they're doing already anyways. They're not, they don't like the worship of relics, which is what they do by collecting all their relics for their uh, general's museum. <sighs> it's, it's, that's wild. So they move on to their section on manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and Bill asks about how he's seen a manifestation where people shake. He says that people shake for being under the power of God. He says he's also seen them shake because of a demon. And he's also seen them shape because of wanting attention. Um, so there's three different things for the power of God, demons, and wanting attention. <laughs> so Johnson says all three manifestations look the same. He goes on to say that uh, you can tell the difference because of the fruit. Hmm. Uh, how exactly can you tell the difference? What is the fruit of someone shaking exactly? Uh, and where is shaking in the Bible? Uh, just a few questions I had. The only people in the Bible who shook and threw people down on the floor were demon-possessed people. No one else shook under the power of God in the Bible. Not even at Pentecost. Johnson then indicates that all the manifestations that he listed can be counterfeited. Of course, there's no biblical precedent for that either that I'm aware of. Um, there's no passage that says all these manifestations of the Holy Spirit can be counterfeited. Um, Johnson just makes stuff up. He creates theology. He hasn't opened his Bible in 27 minutes, and I dare say he will not open his Bible in the next 27 minutes. Um, to use a text of scripture, nothing in this whole episode, not one point of theology that he's mentioned up to this point of how they practice grave sucking or the manifestation of the Spirit has pointed to scripture, not even a single scripture. His Bible remains closed on the desk. I think I said it last time. Uh, my son said, oh, it looks like a prop in a stage. He's, he, it's just sitting there. He hadn't opened it. Again, this whole measure of manifestations and how they decide for manifestations is subjective. It's like if this, then this, and if that, then that, and if that, then this, then if this, then that. It's just they make stuff up. So they don't try to fake it till you make it, he says. Here they articulate. They don't, try to, they don't teach that. They don't want to teach fake it till you make it. However, I know people who have been, for example, at their fire starters class and they teach, just start prophesying and you'll do it. Just start speaking in tongues and it'll happen. Just start jibber jabber and kind of just start, get, get yourself started, get the motor going and it'll go. Um, just kind of look at people and get an impression. Try to look at and find a picture for them and stuff like this. They actually do teach it. Um, it's a very common theme in this movement. Just start and you'll get going. Speaking gibberish if you don't speak in tongues yet, and then it'll come. 
Just start saying something in your heart and it'll happen. Uh, when you speak in tongues, for instance, it's constantly taught in this movement, fake it till you make it. Um, so he's not being very honest here. This movement consistently barters in fake it till you make it with prophecy. Just start, you know, just get an image. What do you see of that person? And then it'll just, just come, you know, so they do, they do it. They practice it. They teach it. Um, man, they teach it in their fire starters class and in their Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Johnson then says, I don't like grading according to manifestation, but that's what they do. <laughs> By the very nature of the movement, they grade according to manifestations. They show them on camera. They show people shaking and rolling around, and everybody wants that. Of course, they're grading on manifestations. People want the manifestations that they're seeing other people experience there. That's, great. that's the scorecard by itself. So by the very nature of their movement, they grade on manifestations. They seek them. They want them. They want the deeper spiritual life. They want the more. And that's what they say. More, 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 Lord, more, Lord, more, Lord. You'll have people just standing up on stage. Heidi Baker is great at it, you know. Um, more, Lord, more. Hit them more. Um, and they'll just kind of, you know mantra of more until more comes. So, um, yeah, you know, that's their, that's their mantra. They, they do want the manifestations and they are grading on the manifestations. So that's also not intellectually honest of him. Um, Dan Fairley says, we try not to judge people by their manifestations, who's anointed and who's not. Again, this false construct of, construct of anointing emerges. There is no extra special anointing by, besides the anointing that we are all anointed with in Jesus Christ when he saved us and sealed us in the Holy Spirit. There's one anointing. No extra special anointing, no levels of anointing, no better anointing than others, no Jacob anointing, no Joseph anointings, no um, Elijah anointings, no anointings for this, that, or the other thing, no worship anointings. There is no extra special anointedness. We are all anointed in Christ. So, um, of course, they measure by anointings. They, they, of course, they measure anointing by manifestation. That's what the whole movement does. If this guy manifests, then he's got some kind of extra special anointing. If this guy does this, then he's got some extra special anointing. If he heals people this way or that way, the other thing, or he prophesies or manifests, then he's anointed. Of course, they measure their, um, their scorecard is manifestations. Uh, Johnson starts to describe his other more powerful encounter that he had with God where God shot him through with bolts of electricity or it felt like electricity. It was going through his body, he said. Uh, this is a question that the critique camp has. Um, there is no encounter described in scripture wherewith a person feels like they're being shocked by electricity going through their body. This type of encounter is foreign to the Christian experience. There's no passage that I can connect or think of where electricity is going through someone's body and people are describing that they're being shocked um, as they encounter God. Not that I'm aware of. Hit me up in the description if you can point to one scripture. So it's made up. There are no passages that describe something like that. Then at the 34-minute mark, um, <clears throat> Dan Fairley says, 
We love tears at the altar, but despise laughter. So this, I presume, is a a defense as well of the laughter movement, maybe the Toronto Blessing, other movements that engaged in what they called holy laughter. Again, there's no scriptural evidence that such a manifestation is a godly manifestation. There's, There's nowhere that says that people who are overcome with a baptism in the Holy Spirit and experienced laughter. I just don't see it. And uncontrollable laughter, not just a giggling like you're, you know, it's funny. Something's something you find something funny or whatever, uh, but an uncontrollable laughter that just goes on and on and on. Um, there's no such thing. Not in the New Testament. Uh, Fairly then says it's the kind of joy you get when your team wins the Super Bowl. But but this is extrapolating upon another extrapolation. They don't have any biblical evidence that a manifestation of the Holy Spirit is laughter. Um, you may have joy, but joy doesn't lead to uncontrollable laughter. Um, a fruit of the spirit is self-control. So if you've lost control of yourself and you're laughing uncontrollably, then you're not exhibiting the spirit of the, the fruit of the spirit. Um, you've lost control of your, yourself. And um, yeah, so that's an extra joy is an extrapolation. Then they extrapolate on that extrapolation and say, you should laugh uncontrollably. That's just not... Um, it's, it's, it's uh, 10 steps too far. Um, it is certainly reasonable to experience the peace that passes understanding and joy in our worship, in our lives, as the word of God promises. However, spirit joy being uncontrollable laughter is nowhere in the New Testament. So at this point, Dan Fairley uses the story of Saul in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 10, I think. If I think the the story he's describing uh, is the one that I'm that I'm understanding, he describes it first of all terribly and incorrectly. Um, the story goes uh, when when he uh, so in First uh, Samuel ten verse nine, it says when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all the signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, Was this what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So Fairly tells a story that Saul was seeking to kill David. He said Saul sent someone to kill David. On his way to killing David, this person that Saul sent was struck by the power of God, or he says hit by the power of God and starts to prophesy. Then Saul gets so fed up that this person won't go and kill David that he uh, himself tries to go kill David. Fairly says Saul was on a murder assignment to kill David. On his way to murder him, he gets struck by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then he says he goes into the area where the atmosphere of other people were prophesying and the Holy Spirit struck Saul too. The Holy Spirit Spirit struck Saul hard. Um, And so it hit so hard that he started prophesying, Fairly says. And Saul walked through the people, and they were ecstatically prophesying, he says. The Bible didn't say they were ecstatically prophesying. It says they were just prophesying. But I digress. Um, It fairly says that because the people were ecstatically prophesying, then Saul started ecstatically prophesying as well. 
So much so that the people started asking the question, is Saul now among the prophets? So uh, then Fairley says that, that, that a guy who didn't want it, yeah, this guy that apparently Saul sent to go kill David got hit by the power of God. That is not at all what happened in this text. This whole handling of 1 Samuel 10 is spurious. It is completely mishandled, misinterpreted, and misrepresented. If you read the text on its face value, it's very clear what's happening. Saul has just been anointed king. When Samuel left, it says God gave Saul another heart. Then the signs came to pass. Saul wasn't on the way to murder David. Saul did not not want this uh, prophecy gift or this this uh, the, the spirit to rush on him. God gave him a new heart, and he had just been anointed as king. Saul had not sent a man to murder David. It's just not there in the text. David is not even in the chronological picture yet. This text is totally mishandled by Farrelly. It's just these guys just create stuff. They see that Saul was filled with the Spirit and started prophesying, and so they twist the whole thing upside down on its head to make it say something that it does not say. Um, this is how these guys do in this movie. They just talk about the Bible. They create storylines that aren't actually there in the biblical text. The story as fairly presents it is not there. So these guys proof text, and they preach proof text or unpreach it, and, and, and it doesn't actually say what they have said it says, to change the details so drastically that uh, this text will prove their theological perspective, that people can be struck by the power of God who don't want it and actually are in rebellion to God. So he was actually saying that, that Saul was trying to kill David. The conclusion for Fairley was that Saul could have had a, a continual encounter with God but he didn't sustain the fruit. And so it's up to you to sustain your fruit. It's up to you to sustain these manifestations. And that's where these guys manipulate people into continually coming back for more. It's like a drug addiction. People must come back and sustain their manifestations. They have to re-experience and have the new next experience and have the greater experience and have the greater manifestation. That's how these guys keep their audiences. They need like drug addicts, to come back to have that next experience, to sustain their, their, uh, their indwelling, to sustain their manifestation, to come back and experience it again. And so Farrelly has manipulated this text to say what he wants it to say. There were no murderous intentions from Saul in this text. He did become a murderer later. Saul did not not want God to touch him. Saul did not not want to prophesy. Farrelly's conclusions of this text was that Saul couldn't hold on to these or maintain these manifestations or sustain them in his life, and that's why he walked away from God. This is not accurate. God sent him a new heart, and then God sent a <laughs> spirit to Saul to torment him. I mean, <laughs> you have to read the text of Scripture. And this is a misrepresentation and misteaching of the text. It's not that he couldn't sustain the manifestations. It's not that he couldn't sustain the, 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 the power and the presence of God. It's, it's just not true, not there, not there. 
And uh, it's from the 35 to 37 minute mark in the video, um, how poorly these guys handle the text of scripture. They don't know how to teach it. They don't know how to exegete it or exposit it. They don't know how to handle the text of scripture properly. It's just not in them. <laughs> That's the consistent pattern of the movement of the new apostolic reformation. They have no idea how to handle scripture. It's just not, it's not, not a, a part of their movement. They don't know how. So they move on to the section about the Kundalini spirit and fairly said the internet has created something that has had never, that he had never heard of called the Kundalini spirit. Again, these guys make stuff up. The internet didn't create the Kundalini spirit. The Kundalini spirit in Hinduism exists. It's just outrageous. <laughs> these guys, the Kundalini spirit did not, was not created by the internet. These guys have no idea. They don't do any research themselves. There is such a thing. There is such a practice in mystic Hinduism called the Kundalini spirit. Here they set up another straw man argument and they easily blow it down because the internet just does crazy stuff. You know, those wackos out there on the internet, they create things called the Kundalini spirit. They give the impression, well, see, the internet just sort of created this thing out of thin air. It doesn't really exist. It's not a thing. But they are going to address it now, even though it's not really a thing. Um, they'll answer the question, even though the internet sort of created it. Why answer the question if the, if it's a if it's a construct of the internet? Um, you know, again, these guys' logic doesn't add up, and 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 they just they just they they fall down like crazy. So then uh, Bill Johnson tells a story um, in context of the Kundalini spirit and and you know, kind of crazy manifestations about where he was disturbed by the visual images of the manifestations that were happening, uh, I guess, at a meeting. I didn't, I didn't really uh, say. He decided to close his eyes just to listen instead of seeing. Uh, then he was not bothered anymore by the physical vision, visual images of what was happening. Um, he noticed by the hearing and by the aura of the room, as he described, the atmosphere, atmospheres as well, are very important in the NAR, um, that it was the same Holy Spirit that he had felt in another worship experience. This is subjective. Again, it's the subjectivity because it sounds better than it looks. Um, it's the Holy Spirit. Um, it's creating a feeling that this is the Holy Spirit, so then it must be right. Um, it shows that their plumb line and their measurement or their measuring stick of who the Holy Spirit is and how he engages people and how he works in people is not in the scriptures. So do we see a description of people writhing, rolling about, falling down when they're uh, overcome by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures? No, not like I said, again, not even at Pentecost. The people were in full control of themselves and they preached the gospel. Peter himself said, we are not drunk as you presume. We are not drunk. Um, and, and it's middle of the day um, and the Holy Spirit is working here, making them speak in other languages where you can understand us in your own language. You know we're speaking Hebrew or Aramaic and you can understand us in your own language wherever they had come from at Pentecost. Johnson's own experience determines then 
if this is the Holy Spirit, his own sense of hearing, for instance. So he, he was disturbed by the manifestations, the physical looking at the person there laying on the floor, I guess, I don't know, he didn't describe it, but he was disturbed, he said, by the physical manifestation. But then he closed his eyes and listened, and it was all better. Um, because he noticed the aura in the room and the sounds were the same sounds as he had ex just like, oh, wow. Um, so then Farrelly described something he called pastoring the environment, a quote unquote, pastoring the environment. So um, in the New Testament, you pastor people. Uh, pastors are shepherds of people. They're not shepherds of environments. They're not pastors of environments. He says you need to be able to pastor the environment. This section describes how you uh, have to know as a pastor the presence of God, basically. Uh, this is, I mean, I, I just don't know where to start because there's no no description of such a thing in the, in the Bible. Uh, you only pastor people. Um, a pastor shepherds people, not environments. So they create, again, this uh, new theology, a new teaching um, on what a pastor ought to do in this section. Uh, again, adding to a pastor's uh, subjective uh, job description. You know, you have to pastor the environment. From what I gather of what he means by that is that a, a pastor needs to look around in the room and see, okay, is this person uh, acting out? Is this person um, in the spirit or in the flesh? Do I need to go over there and kind of pastor that environment to see if that person is um, under the influence of the Lord or whatever? So again, it's a subjective like trying to figure out, hmm, is this God? Is this not? Is this, should I do anything here? Should I not? And should I intervene? Should I not? What What should I do? Pastoring the environments. So that's kind of what I understand he do, he means there. Um, uh, going up to people asking if they're okay. You know, if look, if you actually have to ask, if someone looks so like they're so out of control of themselves that you have to ask if they're okay, then something's wrong. I mean, like plainly, like the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you can't control yourself, if it looks so strange, whatever's happening to you, that you have to go as a pastor and go and pastor their environment and ask them if they're okay, then something is not okay. <laughs> um if you have to, he's asking, he said, make sure they're not having a stroke or that it's demonic. Um, this is how he passes the environment by approaching people who seem to have intense manifestations. He said also he's approached people who are actually said, I know this is great for you, but it's incredibly distracting for the rest of the congregation. So <laughs> again, that cannot be the Holy Spirit if it's so uh, distracting that the rest of the congregation is totally distracted and um, that can't, that can't be God. Um, our God is not a God of chaos, but of order and joy and peace. That's what it's clear. And, and actually Paul's descriptions in Corinthians of how the spirit acts and how the spirit uh, leads and guides people in the congregation. So pastoring the environment is a garbage idea it's not a biblical idea. Pastor, I'm sorry. If you've heard that um, from him, Dan Fairley, in this episode, and you think, well, that's a great idea, pastoring the environment. No, it's not. That's not your task. 
<laughs> if you have to pass to the environment, you need to remove the person from the church who's so distracting and so crazy. And so you need to, I mean, you know, no, this is not a thing. Again, they create stuff that's not biblical. My question then was, uh, does the Holy Spirit do stuff to individuals and in individuals in corporate meetings that is so distracting and chaotic for the rest of the people of the church? I don't think so. Again, I said Paul writes, and he's clearly he writes, God is a God of order, not of chaos. And so if something is so chaotic and so distracting to the rest of the congregation that you have to go over there and pass the environment, then I'm going to say with pretty high degree of certainty, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not the Holy Spirit um, doing that or leading that person to exhibit manifestations that is either self or uncontrollable or emotion. I, I don't care you know, what we label it. Is it a demonic manifestation? It, it's just hard to justify scripturally. The Holy Spirit is a God of order, not of chaos. He cannot initiate chaos because he's not a chaotic God. He can't enact something or initiate something that's not a part of his character. Just like, uh, um, you know, the song Reckless Love um, that's put out by Bethel, it was written by Corey Asbury. God is not a God of recklessness. It's not a part of his character. He cannot act recklessly because he is not reckless. God cannot act chaotically or initiate chaos because he's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order, as Paul describes. So, Moving on, then, Johnson tells a story about how a woman uh, was dancing in one of their meetings very provocatively, and he noticed that it was cold right around her, right? like physically cold, temperature-wise. Because, uh, because of that, he asked someone on their dance team to dance before the Lord. Because of that dancing before the Lord, uh, whatever was happening with this girl was, quote-unquote, broken off. Um, now, this is as well uh, sort of this uh, idea that they have quite often in the breaking and binding and loosing. Uh, there, was a, there was some kind of spirit or something that was um, binding her, this woman who was dancing provocatively, I guess. And, and then it was loosened because um, someone was dancing before the Lord. So um, Johnson said it was a demonic thing. The woman, as soon um, as it was broken off, fell down on the floor in a pile, he said. This is really uh, outlandish. Um, it actually gets to the nature of what they practice in the NAR, um, that strongholds can be broken off through other means besides exorcism or besides casting out a demon of somebody. Uh, they believe there are demonic strongholds on people, and they can do things to mediate those strongholds. So like this woman, he didn't pray or anything. He actually asked someone from the dance team to dance before the Lord. Now, whatever that means, I guess, you know, they're talking about probably like David danced before the Lord. Um, <clears throat> so th there's no other me. You can't you can't dance before the Lord and break off a stronghold um, or, 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 you know, if this woman had been possessed, I don't know. Uh, it seems like she's dancing provocatively. That's some kind of uh, spirit or something. And he said it was broken off through the mediation of this girl on the dance team dancing before the Lord. So there's the, the, the NAR teaches all sorts of wonky stuff like this, that there are other means or other mediations that one can go through to break off strongholds, to, to, uh, exercise people to, you know, they'll do, they'll do wacky stuff. Like, you know, we had, um, 
back in the day, you know, apparently Smith Wigglesworth and, and some of these others kicked people through babies against walls, etc. Did all sorts of other um, mediations to heal people, to break off illnesses, sicknesses, demonic opp opp oppression and possession. And uh, so then Johnson says, yeah, that was actually my story. Oh, yeah, she was dancing in, in front of me in a very strange way. Yeah, and it got cold all around me, physically cold. I went about 10 feet away to see if the room was just cold. I got about 10 feet away, and it was normal. Uh, I got back close to her. I remembered an experience that my brother had with horrible spirits. One time with his ministry in San Francisco, it reminded me of his description of that encounter. So I went over to ask our dancer, Summer, I need you to dance before the Lord. We need to break something, he said. I turned to my wife and said, I need you to pray for her. So then prayer does come in, uh, pray for her. Uh, literally, the moment Summer began to dance before the Lord, this little girl collapsed right in front of me. So actually, the prayer, it seems like the prayer might not have actually happened before Summer, the dancer, danced before the Lord, and it broke off immediately. It was horrible, a very demonic thing. Very, uh, she collapsed right in front of me. This is all the quote of, of Johnson. My wife leaned forward and began to pray for just breakthrough, and she received deliverance and salvation. So, um, two things here before I continue with this quote. Uh, the prayer of the breakthrough happened, and then deliverance and salvation. So, breakthrough, deliverance, and then salvation. So, but I don't, he never spoke about the girl receiving Christ. Um, salvation happens for these folks through healing, through deliverance of dem demonic spirits, through these type of means. Um, and and a, most of the time, you know, in a lot of these stories, I have never heard of someone, this girl especially, I don't hear her receiving Christ as her Lord, Savior, repenting and turning into faith in Jesus Christ. She just sort of received it. She received deliverance and salvation. So, um, a lot of these times in the NAR, these things will happen like this. They will just say it happened, um, and there's no evidence necessarily that the person personally received Jesus Christ. So then he continues, quote, it ended up being a very amazing thing, but it started visually what she was doing, uh, what she was doing it started because of it. The temperature changed. It reminds me of Hebrews 5, to have your senses trained to discern good and evil. There was actually something triggered that seemed to be more biblical than my experience was historically than had ever happened before, end quote. Um, yeah, so there you go. Um, that, that's this, this teaching again that you can kind of break off strongholds, you can um, deliver people, you can stand in the gap, you can mediate for people by doing special rituals, by doing special dances, by doing dancing before the Lord, by waving banners. Um, worship can actually break off strongholds um, and things like this. But those aren't biblical concepts. Um, uh, you can deliver people <laughs> through the name of Jesus, I command you to come out, um, demonic op oppression and possession, um, happen by the name of Jesus, uh, our, our people are delivered. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, like I said, they, 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 they fight for through these, through these means, through these special means, they'll, they'll fight for breakthrough. And then she just received deliverance and salvation. No indication that this girl, 
um, had actually trusted in Christ for her salvation. So salvation is received through these means, through these um, uh, mediating means. Um, you can worship unto salvation, you can be delivered unto salvation, you can have breakthrough and then deliverance and then salvation. And you just sort of receive that. Now you do receive your salvation, but there was no evidence in this story, and I see it a lot in the NAR, no, no evidence that someone has trusted in Christ themselves for their personal salvation. It sort of happens unto them through these mediating means of worship and all these other things. So then Farrelly makes a comment on, on this uh, instance, and he says, well, those folks who were that part of that from the outside, they were just offended at what she was doing and that she was so, you know, so much in your environment, meaning he was close to, she was close to Bill and dancing provocatively and doing that. So there's that moment where we didn't act under response to that offense, but actually acted in, Hey, let's move with spiritual authority. In other words, um, what he's trying to get at, I think, was that that those people, people who saw her dancing provocative, provocatively near Bill were just offended and didn't act sort of in spiritual authority and, and, and let's do something here for this person. Um, but Bill did, and he's so great because he did. He asked someone to dance and mediate for her, even though that's not a, a, a thing, um, mediating by, by dancing before the Lord. That doesn't, that's not a biblical concept. David danced before the Lord out of emotion and joy, but he didn't set anything free. He, there was no breakthroughs. Even they, they'll talk about Michael and how there was a breakthrough because she, uh, you know, rejected him and his, uh, you know, dancing before the Lord and she became barren. So better watch out. Don't rebuke anybody who's dances before the Lord. That happens a lot. They talk about that. That's actually a teaching. I've heard that before. So those things aren't true. Uh, you can't get breakthrough. You can't get salvation. You receive salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and his, at his uh, propitiatory uh, vicarious death for you on the cross. That's how you receive salvation, not by someone dancing before the Lord, no matter how good it might be. Um, so they believe in teaching practice these things, these spiritual strongholds on people um, that by dancing and other means, you can break off these spiritual strongholds. Johnson commanded one of their dance uh, team to dance before the Lord and something was broken off. Um, breaking spiritual strongholds, that, that's what they do in this movement. It's not biblical. You don't see anywhere in scripture where someone danced before the Lord and strongholds were broken, quote unquote, or something was broken off. Can we do anything as humans, as Christians, even to break something off of something, of someone in the spiritual realm? We don't have that authority. But fairly actually mentioned we should move in authority to that end. And that the people were just offended that she was dancing provocatively and they didn't move in authority. They should have moved in authority. Fairly agree with Bill Johnson that they have the authority and the power through dancing before the Lord or whatever means um, they believe they have the authority to break stuff off people. It, it's hard to know what else to say about this besides it's not a biblical practice. No one has that authority, and it's creepy, beyond creepy, and, and not to mention a little bit delusional. They don't have that power. So at the 46-minute mark, to their credit, they say they're not saying that everybody has to exhibit these manifestations. 
Um, they indicate that not every denomination, not every tradition, and not every person exhibits these type of manifestations. However, they say that hunger for God is absolutely necessary. Basically, they say, you don't have to have these manifestations, but if you don't, maybe a hunger for God might help you. And that's a, a teaching of this movement as well. Hunger is absolutely necessary for the um, experience of these manifestations. You're not receiving these manifestations because you're not hungry enough. So um, <clears throat> Bill did say in this section that you can't experience God and sit there and do nothing. Uh, they say on the one side that not every person has to experience these manifestations, but but on the other hand, you can't just sit there and do nothing if you if you know God's in the room. So it's it's double speak a little bit. I give them credit. They say not everybody should experience these manifestations, but <laughs> they say you should. So it's sort of double speak. Um, in other words, if you're not you're not spiritual if you don't exhibit these manifestations, uh, but you don't really have to experience them. But only hungry people experience them. So you see the catch-22 there. They're double-speaking and saying, you don't need to experience them, but basically you do. Johnson then said, uh, denominations tend to want to clean up after their revivals or clean up their revivals. They deny all the controversial history and take all the weird, spooky, and strange stuff out. Um, and uh, my question then is, uh, are manifestations a part of every denomination? What, what exactly is he talking about? Uh, you know, cleaning up revival? If you you maybe help me in the comments, what is he? What maybe he might be referring to? Cleaning up history, maybe. Um, are we are we covering something up in the reformed camp that we're not aware of? Are we? Um, I mean, the the Azusa Pacific. I can only imagine since Azusa have these weird and strange manifestations started taking place. Maybe the Great Awakening. Um, we're talking about how people were moaning and groaning for their sin. Now, notice they'll t they sometimes they do point to the Great Awakening to to these to these uh, sort of strange manifestations that were happening there. But those people were under the power of God and repenting. They were moaning and groaning for their sins. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know, is if you look at that sermon. Read the text just for what it is. Go look it up. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Have a look. Just read the thing. It is, you are, God is holding you by a thread over the pits of hell. Repent. I mean, it's, it is like, woo, mind blown um, repentance message. And then people moaned and groaned for their sins. Okay. So there are some things about the other. We have to actually be honest and deal with the other things of those of those movements and say, okay, there was some other strange stuff. Um, and Jonathan Edwards pulls no punches, but um, I mean, I, the theology of Jonathan Edwards is hard to question, honestly. So uh, he may be talking about that, that the Great Awakening people and people who are on the Reformed camp don't really actually deal with those strange manifestations in uh, Jonathan Edwards' movement. But I mean, it, it's hard to hard to question that his theology, look at the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is the title of it. Go look it up. You can probably find the text for it um, pretty easily. So uh, Johnson, so, so I don't, he, he may be talking about that, but um, help me out. If you think of another thing that I'm not, I'm missing that we're, you know, we're covering up these manifestations and all these movements of God. I, 
I, I don't know, um, since the 1900s, since the Azusa Street revival, um, we've got a hundred year history of strange and odd manifestations. It is a, it is a recent phenomena. It's not something that happened in church history that I'm aware of where people are rolling around, writhing, um, the, the, you know, being slain in the spirit is a, is a recent phenomena that did not happen historically that I'm aware of where people fall back and fall on the ground and you have to have some catchers, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not aware, but help me out in the comments. I'd love to see. So Johnson then tells a story about a, a Chinese revival. Uh, there was a book about it that would bore you to tears, he said, quote unquote, bore you to tears. I guess if revivals don't have manifestations in them, then he thinks they're boring. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it's boring. You know, so they actually talked earlier that manifestations are not their scorecard, but they are. They're just saying right here, it's boring without them. Um, I guess if revivals don't have manifestations in them, then they're boring. Johnson said Randy Clark took the book and rewrote it. I don't know which one he's talking about, so hit me up in the comments. And I guess he spruced it up then to make it more exciting. All this leads me to ask the question, are, are these guys actually revisionists? I mean, there was a book about the Chinese revival. Don't know about it. I really don't know the, 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 the makeup of that book. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know what he's talking about because he doesn't say. Again, it's interesting. These guys don't really say what they're talking about specifically. There was a book. So Randy Johnson, uh, Randy, uh, Randy Clark took the book and rewrote it and spruced it up, made it more exciting. And so my question is, are, are these guys revisionists? Um, are, are they revisionist histor historians? Um, so all this leads me to believe that, uh, that they might be the ones who are revisionists, actually, in the history of these revivals that they're writing about. So students at BSSM are reading about and, and part of the BSSM curriculum, all these revisionist-type books. If you look at the books they have on their, uh, in their uh, curriculum, they're revisionist-type books. They're not accurate. Um, and, and for instance, they read a very slanted and inaccurate biography of John G. Lake and other revivalists that are revisionist type biographies. They leave out all the negative. Um, those, these guys were hucksters and, and charlatans and had very immoral lifestyles. What can you say? Um, so it leads me to believe that they're the revisionist. They're adding stuff, taking stuff out, and and they're the revisionists of these revivalist type uh, type histories. I don't know what Chinese. I, I'd be really curious to see that that book from Randy Randy Clark that he's talking about. He said Randy Clark rewrote a book and and and, and you know made it less boring. I, did he add manifestations? Did he add history to it? Did he revise it? I wonder. Um, so. Most of their books are that they talk about with these biographies. They are revisionist type books. Those things did not actually happen. They're inaccurate and they remove important details of these people's immoral lifestyles. So uh, Fairley and Johnson certainly don't speak about the negative stuff in the revivals, uh, revivalists life, like the sim patterns and stuff, the immoral lifestyles, the divorces, the remarriage, the married people, people were married to people while they were married to other people. I mean, drug use, 
Um, Todd Bentley, you know, um, Bill Johnson definitely uh, created space between himself and Todd Bentley after Todd Bentley was named as a revivalist. You are a revivalist. You are. I've never seen the the anointing presence on you so much as I've seen on other, you know, like, and the guy was living an immoral lifestyle. Um, and, And so they just don't, they don't deal with, they don't deal honestly with immorality um, and sin, sin lives of, of these uh, revivalists. So they're omitting for sure um, because they're omitting people's sin lives and their immoral, uh, immoral lifestyles. And they're adding stuff like in this Chinese book, whichever, whichever book he's talking about. Fairly and Johnson say throughout this episode that that manifestations aren't important. We're not scoring ourselves. We're not grading ourselves on those things. But then they go on to explain how they are super important and why we shouldn't have all these boring books about revivals like this book about China, the China revival. I don't know what he's talking about again. Um, So this whole episode is doublespeak. Johnson said people balk at these manifestations because God didn't do it in me first. No, we don't balk at these manifestations because God didn't do it in us first. No, we don't want those things to happen to us. No, no, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) Critics of this movement are saying those things are unbiblical. They should not be practiced by Christians. No, I don't want God to do that in me first. No, no. Because that's not God. That's not how God operates in our Christian lives. No, we don't want God to do it. So why would he do it in you is uh, usually our excuse for why these manifestations are not from God. No, no, no. He's putting words in the mouth of the critic to say we criticize or have critique for the movement because God didn't do it in us first. We're jealous, basically. This is a straw man argument again, um, and, and it's as well an ad hominem argument that says that we don't care to be, we're not hungry for God. Um, we don't want these manifestations because God didn't do it in us first. You know, we're trying to resist the, look, those manifestations are bad, but because I'm so jealous, I wish God have done it in me. We're sort of pouting and taking our ball, you know, like at the at when I used to play basketball at the street in the in the in the parks, um, you know, the the guy who was no good at basketball um, would say, "Man, I'm taking my ball and going home," you know, uh, <laughs> and that's the critic, you know, I'm going, I'm going to take my ball and go home because I can't, I'm not, I'm no good at this, I'm no good at basketball, so he's going to take his ball and go home. I'm not good at manifestation, so I'm gonna I'm gonna critique you guys for it. Um, it's a non-starter and a non-argument. No, 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 that's not what we're doing. We don't want those manifestations. You may have them. <laughs> I mean, and, and they're not biblical. No, they're not biblical. So then Farrelly asked the question, why do some churches and church traditions have these type of experiences and manifestations and others don't? And Bill answers, um, I, I think it's a risk element. Again, they're take risks, man. You got to take risks for God. You got to just go for it, you know? Um, Then these manifestations will come. Um, Johnson then says, typically, quote, a great hunger precedes outpouring, end quote. So revival and these manifestations are preceded by hunger. Uh, And if we have great hunger for the manifestations of the Lord, then he pours out the manifestations. So hunger is, again, I've I've said it before, I think, um, in in this video, hunger is the way that manifestations are poured out. Um, you just don't see that in the Bible. 
Um, God acts sovereignly. If there's some strange manifestation in the Bible, it's a sovereign act of God. It wasn't because the people were hungry for it. Um, again, it just, it just doesn't square with scripture. It doesn't uh, square with the manifestations. If you want to call them those and you, the ones you see in scripture manifestations, those things were typically supernaturally imposed, um, events, characters in those stories, even those that, that they mentioned, like about Saul, Saul wasn't hungry for a manifestation. And then he started prophesying. The Lord changed his heart. It says it right in the text. He gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass in that day. It, it, it just, um, it happened to him. It happened upon him. It didn't happen because he was hungry. It just says the spirit came upon him. It didn't happen out of that hunger. There's no indication in the passage that it happened because of hunger. So again, they create a false narrative. They create a false expectation that if you're hungry, then these manifestations will happen. And that's why they preach consistently in their churches and their movement, hunger, hunger, hunger. We want more, more. Give us hunger, hunger, oh God. We're so hungry. Uh, more, more, more. Uh, give us more of these manifestations. Um, it's a product of their expectation. So if they expect it, the things they expect to happen will actually happen in your um, in your own imagination because uh, you expect it. It's sort of the placebo effect. If you expect it, um, then it'll happen, right? If you want to be healed, you're taking a sugar pill. Um, you just want it so badly that you'll have. There's a psychological effect. Uh, that's created. Uh, it's called the placebo effect. Look it, look it up. If you're not aware of the placebo effect, it is that you're taking a placebo pill. Um, they're they're doing a study on you know whatever I don't know, you know some kind of study to figure out if this pill, this medicine works for sleeping or something or I don't know uh, you know depression or what what have you anything right? And they're taking the they have a thousand people in a study. And a hundred people are taking a placebo or maybe 500, you know, half of the, half of the study is placebo pills, which are nothing. They're just empty medicine. There's nothing in them. And the other 500 are taking the actual medicine. They're trying to see what happens to the people who actually take a medicine. They think they're taking it for depression or for their sleeping problem or for their acne or something like whatever. Right. And they're taking a placebo They're taking no medicine at all. And, you know, it actually does has some work because there's a psychological effect to expectation. You expect something to happen and it will because you have an expectation of it happening. That's the placebo effect. Um, so this is the placebo effect in essence. You know, people expect for them to shake and writhe. And while I was there at Bethel, there was a young man standing up toward their end of their ministry time and he was standing up. And he just was standing in the middle of a group. There was nobody around him, actually. And he just was shaking. Just, I couldn't do it because it was it was so disturbing. He just shook, like like he was shivering, like he was sh shaking, shivering um, for about 45 minutes, really. Just, a, it was really quite odd and disturbing. And uh, it's that placebo effect. If you expect something to happen, you expect these manifestations, then you will create them, sort of, in your placebo effect. So at the 55-minute mark, Fairley explains that what fire tunnels are. 
Uh, they claim it's a creation of theirs, interestingly enough. So Fairley explains how it started and, and what was happening. A fire tunnel is where people line up on either side of people, and people go through the middle as if it were a tunnel, and there people are ha- putting their hands on top of people like this. They actually have typically... People have hands from either side of the row. They have two rows of people lining up and a row of people walking through the row of people. And they have their hands up typically. And um, so it looks like a tunnel in that sense because people are walking underneath the people's hands. And they're putting their hands on people as they walk by and 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 uh, imparting. They're imparting the Holy Spirit. So um, they claim it's a creation of theirs um, and how, how it started happening. Um people getting hit by the Holy Spirit and they're having all sorts of manifestations and they say it can get pretty chaotic. Again, from my previous note, our God's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order and of a sound mind, Paul writes. So people are losing their minds, losing their senses, losing their capacity or whatever. They're losing, they're losing it in these tunnels. And Dan says to Bill, uh, Dan says to Bill, at one point he was not comfortable with these fire tunnels and said, interesting, he wasn't comfortable with them doing it up front, but, but now all of a sudden he's more comfortable with it. What happened? Right. Um, you suspend, you suspend disbelief. That's what you do. You, um, yeah, you turn, you turn off your brain and you, you turn off your disbelief of what, what you thought. This is strange. What's that? You know, you have to just suspend it, suspend disbelief. Dan approached Bill and said he was not comfortable with it for some reason. Uh, Fairly said he didn't lose his job. And Bill told him, oh, well, don't worry, Dan. You don't have to come near if you don't want to. You can just stand in the back. And over time, Fairly became more and more comfortable with it as it went on. So Bill was so gracious and said, it's okay. You don't have to be comfortable with it. You can just stand in the back. And over the time, then uh, Fairley became more comfortable. And this is really so wild and crazy. Why is he even saying anything to Bill if it's not problematic? Why is he uncomfortable with it? Fairley chalks his, his problems up to his, his problems with it up to his skeptical nature. Uh, th- that is why he was uncomfortable with the fire tunnels. He gives that impression in the podcast series up to this point that his skeptical nature was overpowering his, uh, you know, I don't know, overpowering his his belief in this and 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 his uncomfortability with it. So uh, Fairley was more of the skeptical person, and that, that's why I didn't like the stuff right away. A subtle jab at critics. Only, only the skeptical have problems with our bizarre manifestations. So all you critics out there, stop being skeptical. Suspend disbelief. And you'll see how, how worthwhile and beneficial all these manifestations are. So Dan Fairley says in relation to his coming uh, to experience more and more manifestations, like fire tunnels, for instance, he said he's, he, it's not groupthink. It's not manipulation. So all you, you who did think it was groupthink and manipulation, you're wrong. It, it's not. <laughs> but, but it is groupthink and manipulation. It is. In the end, Farrelly is a full-fledged Bethel convert who thinks all this stuff is totally okay and is totally engaged in all of their practices. So it is groupthink. It is manipulation. 
Dan Farrelly as evidence that it is groupthink and manipulation. He was a critic when he came in, and he changed his mind and dropped, suspended his disbelief. And he's not a critic anymore. He's not a skeptic anymore. See, it is manipulation. He's evidence and proof, the proofs in the pudding, as they say. So, so Bethel's not changing. Uh, you guys who think you can go to Bethel and convert them, it's not happening. And here's the evidence that it's not going to be able to change. So, but Dan Fairley, one of the, I guess he was a pastor at the time. I don't know when he went there and, and what, uh, in what status he was first there, but he went there to Bill and said, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, we should not be doing this as sort of the original objection. But then Bill has basically, basically said, we are doing this and you're welcome to stand at the back until you're comfortable with it. But we're doing this. Your objections, they might have noted them. It might be duly noted, but we're doing it anyways. Um, it, it, it's, they're, they're not changing for you, for your objections. Those, those parents are most likely uh, calling to, object, to voice their objections and say, we wish you would not do these things. Um, but that's, they're not changing for those parents. <laughs> they're absolutely asking them to, you, you, may, you, may, uh, you may be dismissed or you may stand in the back until you're comfortable. We're doing them. We're not changing for your objection. We're doing them. And so you're welcome to, you know, kind of just hang out in the back until you're comfortable. That's what happened to Dan Farrelly. So um, that's how they do that. That's how they roll, as it were. Um, so Farrelly and Johnson start to broach the subject of being drunk in the spirit and holy laughter. And Johnson connects uh, that to Acts chapter 2, where Peter says, these people are not drunk, as you presume, or the people who were witnessing this happening in, in, in Pentecost and presume they were drunk. But what, ha what they don't, what they don't uh, notice here is that Peter stands up and says, we are not drunk as you presume. So he distanced himself from the drunkenness that they actually claim is happening. There are people who are drunk in the Holy Spirit, and no, Peter says, no, we are not. We are not drunk as you presume. We are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He is giving us this supernatural ability to speak in different languages. <laughs> These guys, man. I, <laughs> uh, so, the, and and then Bill Johnson says the the, the way they frame their argument, there must have made there must have been something that made them appear like they were drunk. So that's the justification for being drunk in the spirit. That's not a justification for it. Um, the scripture says clearly, do not be drunk with the holy drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> over, scripture over and over says drunkenness is sinful. Drunkenness is not allowed. That type of loss of control is a negative. And the type of control of the Holy Spirit is a positive, where the Holy Spirit is filling you, controlling you, giving you self-control, giving you control of your faculties, giving you wisdom and guidance and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, all these things. The Holy Spirit gives you these things. Drunkenness is the opposite of the filling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the opposite. So those of you who've engaged in this practice, turn away from it. 
drunkenness and the, and the type of behavior that drunkenness brings on, loss of control, is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit and should be avoided. So everywhere scripturally, Peter says, we are not drunk as you presume. Look, we are being controlled by a supernatural power, not by wine. And those two things are total, at total, uh, they're total antithesis to each other and uh, should be avoided. Do not be drunk with wine. Do not behave like pagans do. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, um, yeah, the obvious reason that the people thought they were drunk was because they were speaking in unknown languages. Uh, they, they didn't know what they were. How, how can I understand? I know that that guy's speaking Hebrew. I know that that guy's speaking Aramaic, but I understand him in my language. That is crazy. How is that happening? So they were presuming something, trying to figure out how it was happening. And of course, these speakers, the people who were speaking these languages, they weren't speaking gobbledygook. The last time I heard someone uh, speak in tongues or act as if, funny enough, act as if they were speaking in tongues, they said this, Roya Romborio, literally, that was what was said and passed off as the act of speaking in tongues. That's not a tongue. That's roya rombario. Um, and literally, that's I, I wrote, it was so crazy and bizarre, I wrote it down. Um, I heard an NAR leader speaking in tongues or try, acting like he was speaking in tongues, and he said that. That's not tongues. That's gobbledygook. Those people in Acts chapter 2 were not speaking gobbledygook. They were speaking in unknown languages and... They were languages. They understood them as languages. So um, one hour into the third episode of Rediscover Bethel is the first time that Bill Johnson opens his Bible to teach anything. It's like, wow. They've been speaking about theology. They've been speaking about their practice. They've been speaking about what they do at Bethel, their DNA, and one hour into the third episode, out of six, they're all two-hour episodes, give or take, he opens his Bible to teach us anything. Of course, it's not to teach something, but to falsify something or falsify the reason that people were being perceived at Pentecost as drunk. He goes on to explain how drunkenness in the Holy Spirit is justified out of this passage. People said they must be drunk, quote-unquote. So he uses a few words out of the text of this passage in Acts 2 that they were confused and, and perplexed and they didn't know what's happening, why people were, were acting as if drunk. Again, um, they weren't drunk. Peter clearly lays out drunkenness is not what's happening here. We are under the control and influence of the Holy Spirit and he preached the gospel. So Bill, just like a, a good NAR teacher, uses these few words, this phrase, and rips it out of its context to signify the moves of God. The manifestations are messy, and people will not adhere to them right away, and it just takes time for you to get used to it. This, of course, does not reflect the passage itself. We looked at it, the passage, uh, the people all received the Lord Jesus Christ because Peter preached the gospel of repentance and faith. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Repentably, that the people asked, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins. People were initially maybe perplexed in that passage, of course, didn't understand how this power could be, but then Peter immediately dispelled the confusion, <laughs> right? There wasn't this long manifestations and people laying around for hours on end. He immediately stood up and dispelled their confusion. So then right after he preached the gospel. So um, is it okay for people not to quite understand what's going on and to have all the chaos and have these odd manifestations, holy laughter, being drunk in the spirit, shaking, fire tunnels, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth and so on? No, they're not justifiable from those texts. What's my conclusion? Uh, these guys actually believe it. They teach it. They believe it. It's not like rediscovering Bethel and like, oh, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> they don't actually believe all that stuff, the drunkenness of the Holy Spirit or holy laughter or the Toronto movement or all these other things, these weird and odd manifestations. They're confirming that they believe these things. They're confirming that they practice drunkenness in the Spirit, holy laughter, and all other manner of odd manifestations and going after more manifestations. They're confirming what we knew and, they, and believe they taught. They're not denying it. They teach it, they practice it, and they're pursuing more of it. They admit that they have videos everywhere all over the internet of their students in piles, as they say. That's Farrelly's words. And, and that basically we should just not be offended at that. Um, because we should suspend belief and stop being having a critical spirit and stop um, uh, stop having you know stop being so sensible. <laughs> um, Fairly says that's a precious moment between them and the Lord when they're in piles, as he says, and, and we shouldn't be offended at that because that's between them and the Lord, and it looks odd and strange, and it doesn't make for good TV, as he says. <laughs> But we should just not be offended by that because it's authentic and it's real and it's an authentic thing. Uh, they make a real weak, flimsy case for why these manifestations should continue. I'll repeat it. All these manifestations and how things work is genuinely subjective. If you do this, then that. If you fall down in a pile, he said, at, at the 106-minute mark, then you can sometimes control yourself because the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Sometimes you can't control yourself at all. Um, if this, then that. If the Holy Spirit's doing this, then you'll do that. And if you respond this way, then that way. And, and it's very, very subjective. Not to mention it condemns an entire branch of Christianity that doesn't practice these things. They say that, that not every church needs to practice this, then they do it and paint a picture of the rest of us missing something that the Lord has for us if we don't. They basically are trying, albeit extremely inadequately, to build a case for why it's important that we do take on and take part in these weird and bizarre manifestations. Uh, either it's meant to be practiced by everyone and we're really missing something, in our Christian life, or we're not. They have expressed in this episode, we don't want to we, we don't want to miss something God would have for us as Christians. Can a Christian miss out on something that God would have for you? No. Uh, he, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1:6. Christian, 
hear me on this. You cannot miss something that God has for you. Philippians 1, 6 confirms it. He who began a good work in you, the work of salvation, will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He will not let you miss something that he has for you. If you get anything from me, get that. You're not going to miss anything. God will not withhold something from you, a blessing or anything. If you don't manifest in the spirit this way or that way, if you don't allow yourself to be hit by the spirit, as they say, this is spiritual superiority. They have it together and we don't. The Holy Spirit's working through them and not through anyone else. This is spiritual elitism. They're the elite ones who have the true practice of the Holy Spirit and no one else does. Even though they say not every church needs to practice this, they often repeat it in this series, in this particular episode as well, that if you don't do this or if you, if you things are, aren't part of this, uh, then you don't want to miss what God has for you. More doublespeak. It's doublespeak the whole episode. Not every church needs to do this, but don't just, just don't miss something that God really has for you. Christian, you cannot miss what God has for you. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. You cannot miss it. Fairly then tells a story about how uh, he was basically wrecked in the Holy Spirit and he had to preach and he just kind of held on to the side of the pulpit and would just rather have not preached because he was so wrecked. Um, so out of control, funny. Um, so he felt like he had to preach because it was part of his duty. Um, he said he held on to either side of the pulpit just to kind of get through it. Later, he said that the father, through his inner voice, said to him, yeah, I'm not really sure why you did that. In other words, God told him, why didn't you just let yourself be wrecked? Um, and why didn't you just let the whole church service uh, be wrecked like you? And, and why didn't you actually just not preach? <laughs> so God spoke to him through his inner voice, uh, which is interesting. Is the father speaking or is it his inner voice? Which one is it? Uh, does God speak through inner voices? Um, and God would tell him not to preach? Like, doesn't that contradict God's word? Preach the word, it says, in season and out of season. Be ready. My dad used to tell me, be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. <laughs> and so it's how God communicates his word through preaching. So these are the critiques we have of the NAR. Yeah, I don't see a biblical precedent that God speaks through inner voices. Uh, then Fairley says that they, they teach their students to respect people's environments. Meaning when you go to minister at another church, he's talking about going to another, another, another tradition. So they want their students, BSSM students, to respect other people's environments when they go there, uh, to respect their boring manifestations. In my experience, it, it is the exact opposite. These BSSM students or people from Bethel go to other churches and ministries and they take their values and theologies and impose them on other churches. I've seen it here in Germany, in Europe, all throughout, all throughout Germany and all throughout Europe, people who have gone to BSSM, they're graduates of BSSM, they go there and come back and impose their values, their theology and their practices, their NAR things um, that they have learned on the local congregations that they come back to. And 
typically in a few years, those churches turn into Bethel and NAR type churches. I've seen it happen. There's been plenty of hostile takeovers in uh, all of Germany and Europe of NAR theology and Bethel type perspectives and theology. They impose uh, Bethel and BSSM type of ministry on their churches. These students impose their ideas and how supernatural manifestations should be on people and on them, and they force them onto them. So in my experience, that's not how it goes. But yet BSSM students come back to their local congregations and they impose their will. Their claim that they honor other traditions and environments of other churches is bogus. That's garbage. They do not do that. The NAR and BSSM and Bethel take over. It's happening here in Germany, happening all across Europe. It's the exact opposite. I don't know if they really actually honestly believe or saying he he communicates that to their students to respect churches and philosophies and environments. As he says, I can't imagine they do that on a consistent basis to say, hey, respect the church you're going back to. Don't try to change them. But the students, they don't do that. They come out of the school and they don't do it. They don't respect other church environments. They go as missionaries to these churches and force their style of ministry and theology on their churches. That's my experience. So they may be saying it to their students, but I I can hardly believe it that they're saying it on a consistent basis. They're training those students. They go to Bethel. They're training them in their way of life and their ministry, and they're sending them back to their churches with that task to missionize um, those other congregations into their style of revival. At the one uh, hour and 12 minute mark in this uh, episode, they discussed the glory cloud and gold dust that appeared in one of their meetings in, in 2011. Johnson writes it in his book and is definitely, definitely proud of this uh, moment in their church ministry history. And in the book, he expressed that they want to see more of those type of manifestations. So that first, they don't deny it happened. And they really are talking about it as if it were such a great move of God. Um, he described how it happened on more than one occasion and that it started happening. So this glory cloud, this glory cloud of filled with uh, gold dust would come into their meetings in the late evening before they went to close the building. And then it started moving up in their time and up closer to their service times all the way to the beginning of the service. It happened on more than one occasion where gold dust would be visible in their meetings. And he says it just created an awe so that this uh, real experience they believed actually happened, that God did it. Um, God gave them gold dust in their meetings. In their minds, it was an authentic manifestation of the Holy Spirit and God's favor upon them. So this is absolutely elitist. elitism again. Their elitist attitude comes through. Do, do you want to have that kind of experience? Then come on to Bethel, where the place between heaven and earth is thin, and you can really experience uh, heaven on earth. I guess since 2011, they stopped putting gold dust in their ventilation systems, however. Um, <laughs> I wonder why it stopped. You know, if it's God's favor on them, did God stop? showing his favor. Why did it stop? So it seems like uh, around 2011, they stopped putting gold dust in their ventilation systems. Um, I wonder wonder why it stopped. Uh, why would it stop, actually? If it's God's favor on them, is God's favor not resting on them anymore? Um, or did God stop putting gold glitter in the ventilation system? What happened? 
<laughs> do they run out of glitter? I mean, I think you can probably put probably get gold glitter at Walmart and Redding, I guess. Um, but I'm not sure. Maybe they ran out. Maybe Walmart ran out of glitter. Um, <laughs> it's it's pretty obvious. Even uh, people have tried in those times to tell what the substance was that was floating in those meetings. It was gold glitter. People went to go test the stuff out. <laughs> so Johnson then said, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's as ridiculous as it can be. Um, so yeah, I mean, let, let's just actually ask that for the sake of argument. You know, like in 2011, it basically stopped. He says it happened for about 26, 26 times it happened. Why did it stop? If God's favor is resting on them, is his favor not resting on them anymore? Um, and so he says it happened about 26 times altogether. He actually counted them. I mean, I don't know if he actually was like one, two, three. Oh, this is the 26th time, you know. But he said 26 times. So I'm taking him at his word. And he counted them. He said he didn't want to stop. Uh, he didn't want to worship the sign. But he wanted to worship the one who the sign pointed to. I don't know. Um, how does glitter in the air point to Jesus? I mean, you know. A glory cloud. You can just say basically that stuff points to God, and then it does in this movement. You know, um, there was this, actually this film, The Finger of God, years ago, where gold gems and and gold teeth appeared in people's mouths, and um, what else? Uh, glitter on people. There was this prophet that would go around, and he would just apparently be preaching and prophesying that glitter would just start appearing on him everywhere. How was that God? Like, um, where in scripture did those things happen? Um, you can just sort of say anything happened. And then there was this most more recently, there was this Bible that started producing oil, like oil would be pouring out of the thing. And, um, <laughs> someone tested that oil and it was, uh, machine oil, <laughs> you know, so these guys, I don't know, like it, it, you just can kind of say that things happen and things are from God and then they are, you know? Anyways, um, it's uh, unusually strange then to keep tallies, interestingly, on how often it happened. He says, I didn't want to focus on the sign. I wanted to focus on the giver of the sign. But wait a minute. Why are you keeping tallies? I mean, is he like counting on his iPhone? Is, is he like, you know, one, two, three, four, and then striking through? I mean, is how, how do you count them and not actually be looking and, 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 and keeping your eye to the sign. I don't know. Um, and why do you brag about it in your books? Um, so he counted them and, uh, he is looking at the sign. He's contradicting himself just by counting how many times it happened. Uh, it's unusually strange then to keep tallies. Uh, he said then, or at least he intimated that the reason that this happened was because there was a hunger and expectancy, um, and, it, and it just happened because of that. It, it, it hadn't happened in nine years. Uh, once it stopped happening, they didn't, or didn't mind or, or didn't wonder what was going on, why it stopped happening. They just moved on to the next thing. So Fairley makes the link between their hunger and the expectancy with these manifestations. So if you're not hungry for God, and you're not, then you're not experiencing manifestations. That's a reason why. Um, you people who don't love God out there and not are hungry and expectant that God works. So this does produce in other churches who are listening to this, who are hearing this podcast, either 
condemnation on them and that they're not expectant and, and hungry for God or that they should be hungry and then they'll experience these manifestations. The only conclusion you can draw is that hunger is the key for these type of manifestations. Is this accurate? Is this biblical? Does the Bible even intimate or hint at hunger being the reason for manifestations? Nowhere. I can't think of a single spot where some kind of supernatural thing happened in the Bible and it was because of people's hunger. I just, I can't think of it. Even Pentecost, they were praying. They were, they were waiting on God because God, Christ told them to go wait and I'll pour out your spirit. You know, um, that's maybe the only time you can imagine that maybe hunger and expectancy, they were expecting the Lord to give them the Holy Spirit and waiting and praying. But there's just not a biblical precedent for manifestations being a direct result of our hunger. It's just not there. I would uh, argue that if the Lord is really displaying his presence, his manifold presence, as they talk about in any sense of the word, you're going to be on your face, not holding your cell phone up and going, whoa, <laughs> look, um, you'll be on your face. So it could not have been the Lord, the God of heaven's armies appearing to them in their meetings because they would have been on their face, lying prostrate in fear of the Lord, not holding out their cell phones, laughing and giggling and carrying on. This sort of thing makes it pretty clear for me that it was not the Lord, but some other thing, most likely Walmart glitter in the ventilation shaft. That's just a guess. Uh <laughs> Bill Johnson further talks about what it was like. Uh, he said it was overwhelming and subtle. Hmm. I tend to disbelieve that anything that the Lord does, if he appears in person and makes his presence known that it is subtle. God's presence is not subtle and never defined in the New Testament or the Old Testament as subtle. You can think of maybe Isaiah in the temple uh, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips <laughs> on, on his face. John on the island of Patmos, he was on his face. Um, <laughs> just every time that uh, God showed up in some way, God covered up Moses because he could not look at him. He would have died. Uh, the priests going into the Holy of Holies every year had precautions set in place in case they happened to die in the Holy of Holies so they could get their bodies out. They tied a rope around their ankles so that if they happened to die in the Holy of Holies, they could remove their bodies. I mean, <laughs> God is not subtle. <laughs> Fairly explains how he was feeling that either this is the Lord or this is some trickster and magician making this happen. He said there was an actual dissonance he experienced, a cognitive dissonance. He thought that uh, this can't be happening, It's or it's truly the Lord. If the Lord appears, then it will clearly be him, and you will be on your face in repentance and fear, not cognitive dissonance. People who had an epiphany in the Old Testament or New Testament didn't think, hmm, I wonder if this is the Lord, or hmm, I wonder if this is something else behind this. They didn't have cognitive dissonance. They didn't, they weren't sh not sure. 
they knew it was God and they landed on their faces. Uh, this can't be, it can't have had cognitive dissonance, whether it was the Lord or not. You can't, you, you can't be unsure. So then Fairley, this is very funny. Fairley describes how he came to understand or name uh, the glory cloud. He says, because glitter cloud didn't sound so majestic. <laughs> I really, I really about fell out of my chair when I heard him say that. Then they just laugh heartily, you know. <laughs> oh, ha, 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 he, he, he. We had to find a name that sort of matched the glory of it all. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> so they had to name this thing that was happening to them. And <laughs> he didn't want to call it the glitter cloud because uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound very majestic. So <laughs> their irreverence is really astonishing. If this was God, you're not going to treat this like, hmm, in this section, these, you know, how are we going to name this thing that we, that, that where God appeared to us? <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Can't name it a glitter cloud because, you know, glitter is what you get at Walmart. Uh, <laughs> wow. These guys have no reverence for God. None. It's, it's astounding, truly astounding how little reverence they have for God in this section, the last 15 minutes of this episode. Fairly says then, if you're hungry, you'll find the Lord. And if you're not, you'll find offense. That's another sideways jab at the critics. Um, who are looking at this movement with skepticism. They're basically saying here, you critics, you aren't hungry for God. You're, you're just offended because you're not hungry. If you're hungry for God, you would just get along with this and fall in love. Obviously, you're not hungry for God. So if you're, you were hungry for God, then you would understand all this and it would be okay with you. <sighs> These guys just... They, if you don't agree with them, basically, if you don't run right along in line, um, you are not in God's will. You're not hungry. You're not expecting God to do anything. You're boring Christians out there. And we're sorry, you know, you're just, we, we are the elite Christians. I mean, the, the elitism in this whole episode is really, really, uh, rich and thick, especially coming from people who are really pride themselves on ecumenicalism. Um, but they're not really ecumenical. They're only ecumenical with people who don't question their, their practices, their theology or, or their teaching. So yeah, my conclusion here is that these guys in this episode, this is episode three. Um, these guys believe what we thought they believed they practice what we thought they practiced. Rediscovering Bethel series has helped confirm that they are who we thought they were. It's pretty clear. You watch it, um, and they are who we thought they were. They don't deny any of the fundamental things that we, uh, the critique, the critiquing camp, have critiqued them for. They believe it, they practice it, and they pur purport it to other churches and ship their students, their BSSM graduates, to the rest of the world to transform other churches. The reason I put these things out, the reason I do this, the reason I wrote my book is to warn people, warn churches 
to mark and avoid these teachers. If students come from Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, warn them that they are not to allowed to perpetrate their theology and their what they've learned at BSSM in your church because they will aggressively seek to take over. Rediscovering Bethel series has helped confirm for me and for those who watched that they are who we thought they were. So, uh, sorry, this is a long, long episode, but I think it has to be done. A response, a full-fledged response has to be given to these Rediscovering Bethel episodes because it confirms in the end that they are who we thought they were. So thanks for listening to this episode of Churchpreneurs Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at richardpmore.net. I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter. If you do that kind of thing still, I haven't quite yet been blocked or banned from Twitter, but uh, my Twitter handle is at richardpmore23. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast, any comments or questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. Until next time, God bless you. Take care.